1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana Harrington, and joined by my North by Northeast by Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston III. Brandon, how are you today? The third. I've got, uh... I've got children, apparently, out there in the world. I, I, I'm, I'm great, Mickey. How are you? I'm, it's a Friday night, and uh, all is right. So, what can <laughs> we say? Uh, did you uh, wrestle since I talked
2: to you last? i not. Uh, no, I've not. I've just been training and just hanging out. And I actually uh, I, I bought a coffee maker. And I've actually got real coffee here from a real auto-drip coffee maker here. I've been drinking it from my Elite Apollo um, coffee box. Did you know that I'm actually the only wrestler in the world to have been in all four Ilio DePaulo Memorial Cup matches? Wow. Even Ilio DePaulo himself was not in those. That's true, yeah. And he was never in a, a gauntlet-style six-way scramble match like those matches are. Hey, have you ever met the Destroyer? I shook his hand once. So I was wrestling on a show in, in Akron, which is, like, where he lives, which is not far from Buffalo, but it's, like, 45 minutes away from where I live, let's say. And there was, like, a, a Legends show that, w- that was... Uh, I think it was booked by Brian Knobs was the boss if you can imagine that. Um, but anyway, it was a bunch of former WWE names and stuff, and there was like one match with a local guy versus a local guy, and, and it was me and Kevin Bennett. We had the first match on the show, and uh, and then we came to the back. and I remember coming coming back, and it's, it was kind of outdoors, but to make a long story short, anyway, I came to the back, and like Destroyer is, is sitting right there in a chair or something. And I like. I was like, oh man and I just got done wrestling a match and like, you know, dick the destroyer buyers right there and I shook his hand and I don't know, I said a couple things to him or something. But and they they brought him in the ring later in the night. But, but yeah, I think that's the extent to which I've met the destroyer.
1: Okay, just curious. You, you know, he's have he's, you ever met him? I don't think I have. I wish I had. Uh he's a pretty cool guy from everything I've read and seen about him. Yeah, some great matches and, with Neil uh, Masqueras out there. You know, and the guy's eighty seven, yeah, so yeah. I mean he's uh, and he, he used to do those tours of Japan to, like, bring over, like, the U.S. Amateur Wrestling Club, and they'd all put on destroyer masks when they went to Japan and stuff. Really? It's pretty awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, he's a badass. And uh, my other favorite, like, destroyer story is, I think it was the destroyer, that the one time they, like, booked him for a tour of Australia and he couldn't go. So they just sent somebody else in a destroyer mask. Oh, right. Wow. <laughs> so when you're looking at, like, old uh old uh, results from, like, the 60s or the 70s, wow. it's, like, there's this one destroyer thing where they're just, like, other destroyer. This guy was booked in New York. But, yeah. Hey, man! Make your money. Yeah. In the days before the internet, you can get away with that sort of thing, but uh, you know, not so much now. Not so much. Not not so much with Twitter. Not so much with Twitter, and then and, and this litigious wrestling society that we live in today. Spe- speaking
2: of lawsuits, you broke a story today. I mean, we're recording on Friday. You broke a story about
1: CM Punk, didn't you? I wrote an article that came out today. About uh, all the things that have been going on in the CM Punk, Colt Cabana, Dr. Christopher Amon, libel slander lawsuit in Illinois, and the corresponding lawsuit in Connecticut, where uh, CM Punk, Philip Jack Brooks, has been suing the WWE over uh, getting them to comply with a subpoena to supply a whole bunch of documents and the cost of that subpoena. And uh, that lawsuit in Connecticut is actually a year old. like that's what stunned me is that this Connecticut lawsuit has been going on for a year and I've seen almost, I I think I found one or two references to the subpoena when it first started to come out and I've seen nothing since then. And uh, I I'm just kind of shocked that a CM Punk story went this far under the radar for that long with this many documents. And it was all free. Like it wasn't like you had to go on Pacer. You did not have to pay anything. This was just go to the Connecticut uh, state court lawsuit. Uh, civil court. Type in, you know, WWE World Wrestling, and then there it was. It was just sitting right there as Philip Jack Brooks, and and part of me couldn't believe that it was actually, you know, CM Punk when I first saw it. I thought, no, this got to be a different person or something. But uh, I came across that maybe Tuesday, and then I started working on a story, and uh, it took me a couple days to just sit and read it all. And I I actually shared it with the uh, members of the Legal uh, Drive, uh, the Google Legal Group. And uh, either they all kept their mouth shut or none of them are paying any attention because I I tweeted out a couple cryptic hints like, hey, I found something really cool that people should look at. And no one, you know, no one bit. No one asked, hey, what is it? Can you give us a clue? Anything? No. But so that was interesting. Just kind of writing about it. Um, I could talk about it, you know, for a good two hours here, but maybe it's easier for me to actually to interview you. And, say, you, Brandon, as someone kind of who doesn't read lawsuit stuff 24-7 the way I do, what did you learn in this lawsuit uh, uh, discussion that I on this article I wrote on Fightful.com? Most memorably, I learned that at some point, Kevin Owens uh, had
2: some sort of discussion with, with Dr. Chris Amon about whether or not all that stuff that CM Punk claimed, or at least some of it, whether it really happened. Because there, there's, there's a... a some part in there right where he where he's making the argument about how this has really damaged him and he's gonna he has to pay more on his insurance premium for his was
1: it malpractice insurance and uh, yeah yeah he sa- he specifically says his hallmark specialty insurance company his malpractice insurance has increased by 63 percent and his de- deductibles quadrupled right. and that all the other um insurance rates he could get were also high or higher right from, from and so he felt yeah. And so he felt this was directly related to the bad press that he came out of the anxiety, podcast. Anxiety, stress, and loss of sleep,
2: a loss of weight and muscle mass.
1: Uh, he he, he
2: it's something about like he doesn't expect to be have as good of a chance to be promoted within WWE, right, or to get other job opportunities elsewhere.
1: Yeah, and then he specifically said there's a lack of trust in his ability as a physician by new WWE talent. And he calls out that Kevin Steen, a.k.a. Kevin Owens, inquired whether Amon committed the acts or omissions contained in the statements published by Brooks and Colton. And so that was interesting because up until now, uh, we hadn't really seen any documents that said why exactly did Amon feel that he had the slander or that the the libel had injured him in some way and that, that you know, was a harm that needed to be uh addressed. So I found that really interesting and the the rest of the piece goes into some depth about, you know, exactly what are all the defenses that punk laid out which if you think about it libel is actually a very difficult thing to prove because, you know, there's so many things about free speech and um, uh, being e- eccentric in in um, you know, hyperbole when you speak on a podcast and things of that nature, and even to the point of saying, well, sometimes we said doc, but we didn't say which doc. So how, how can they infer that it's the doc that you think it is? And uh, basically, when WWE got sued to comply with this subpoena, then they went through this whole back and forth where basically they argued about the, the scope of the subpoena and the cost of the subpoena. And they even got as, as you know, petty as basically saying, well, Punk's lawyer lives in California, so we're going to insist that he shows up in person every time we have a hearing to try and just kind of mess with him. Uh, and I'm sure they had their own reasons, too. They argued that it's because these are complex topics and being on the phone is tough to talk to someone and and you know make decisions. But eventually the court decided in December that they would have to split the cost of the subpoena 50-50. And what's important to remind people is that there is no lawsuit between WWE and... And Punk. There is a lawsuit be- by Dr. Christopher Amon and Colt Cabana and CM Punk. And as part of that lawsuit, a subpoena was issued to WWE. And to get them to comply with the subpoena, Punk sued WWE. And so the agreement basically was that there's a big burden for them to do all this collection of data to go through gigabytes and gigabytes of of emails and to look for documents. And of course, it's a very broad scope where it says, you know, we want everything that had to do with Punk or with the podcast or with Dr. Amon or with personal files with us. And you know it's very broad, and so it takes a lot of searching. And WWE, as a, a both a litigious company and also a very uh, risk averse company, doesn't want to reveal all this information publicly, and so they have to scrub it quite a lot, and they have to figure out what is under privilege, when is it under privilege, and so forth. They they'd written an article on WWE that some people might remember, where they published some video showing you know they, they hey where's the lump on his back video <laughs> on
2: YouTube right of of I think it's CM Punk throughout the Royal Rumble. Is, is that yeah. what it is? Where yeah, they're he's in his trunks or whatever, and they're looking for the lump that he says is on his back. And but I think his defense is well, it's under his his tights. It's under his gear. It's not, you know, it's not visible.
1: It's interesting when you sit there and you read it all. Uh, So just to kind of finish the story. So they they subpoenaed them. Originally, WWF said it would cost somewhere between $180,000 and $400,000 approximately. And in the end, they came back with a bill for $240,000 and said, well, in December, the judge voted that you had to pay half of this. So you owe us $120,000. And Punk's defense came back and basically said, we don't think that you really incurred $240,000 worth of costs involved in generating the data for my subpoena. And then the data that, the you are, that they're trying to get here is, is what? A bunch
2: of emails, video footage, and things like that, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, they were asked for basically any documents or communications of any kind that involved the podcast, the article, uh, decisions, agreements, or any undertaking that shows that they're paying for Aman's lawsuit, which is something that Punk has alleged – on other interviews, but uh, there's no th- there's not concrete proof of that at this time and, and obtaining all um, that
2: stuff is going to cost two hundred forty thousand dollars. I, I, feel, I well, feel like if you gave me access to the internal network, I could probably dig that stuff up in a week.
1: Well, that's the idea is that they're saying that, you know, there's gigabytes and gigabytes of emails on these people's on these 20 people that they basically identified and said, here's people in talent relations. Here's people in the medical. Here's Vince and Stephanie and Triple H and Vince's chief of staff, a a name I'd never seen before. But uh, a guy I learned about named uh, Brad Blum, I think is his name. He's a U.S. Army guy who's like Vince's chief of staff. So kind of the again, the Trump model in action here of take someone from the military, make him your chief of staff and, and get things done. Um, You had a a
2: tweet earlier today with a screenshot of from from some document. You can probably tell us what it was that had basically a listing of the size of everyone's mailbox. Like how many gigabytes are are, are Vincent Mann's mailbox and Paul Levesque and things like that. That was interesting.
1: Yeah. And so it just kind of shows you. And so basically all those documents then have to be grabbed. They have to then be sorted and deduped. And then they, they basically the way I believe it's done in electronic discovery is that you come up with certain terms and dates and people, and then you basically try to say, okay, are these the documents that would meet those criteria? And then you have to dedupe the data sets because, of course, you know it's going to be on everybody who was emailed on that chain. Yeah. Then you take all those documents, and they they kind of have to. Then you have to figure out what is attorney-client privilege because some of those conversations, you know, it, it, they can talk about these things with their lawyer, and that's privileged conversations, and they can't, you know, get those sort of things. So there's there's arguments about that. And so eventually they come up with all the lawyer hours that are going into basically deciding what's in scope here, who is doing this discovery, who's actually running these queries, who's having all these phone conversations, and then, you know, drafting all the legal things. And so Punk's team is basically saying that all these hours might have been billed to WWE, but A, just because WWE is willing to pay the bill doesn't mean that they're willing to pay. B... Maybe some of these hours involved fighting the subpoena, and that's not in his benefit. So why should he have to pay for services rendered by the WWE legal force to fight him? So basically he's saying it should I should just have to pay for the, the time that was spent on fulfilling my request, not the time spent on fighting it. Um, see, some of your lawyers that you used on this were your $600 an hour lawyers, and that's a lot of money. And during the time, their fees actually went up because usually you raise your – fees between each um, fiscal year, you you kind of increase everybody's uh, uh, lawyer rates. So they're even saying, you know, some of these people went from 645 to 660 and so you have to argue about what is a reasonable lawyer fee. You know, someone else might say only $400 an hour is reasonable, and everything after that is is kind of, you're not really getting much more for your, paying for your buck, and that's not a reasonable fee to charge someone else. So they're arguing about it all, and, w- and, and Punk's lawyers basically came back and said, We're willing to pay a third of the amount that you started with, 240, and we'll only pay half of that. So we'll pay $40,000. And $40,000 is in the range of what we could maybe get back in a civil action, versus $120,000 might be more than the value of any winning a civil action period would be. So, um, what is a civil it, action. Well, like in the like one person suing another person, a civil action, you know, there's not a not a criminal like the state's not suing you. It's it's between two people. So so Um, is this really the question I asked you when you showed
2: me this the other day was that so they're saying that that punk has to pay whatever it is, one hundred twenty thousand dollars. And I asked you, well, if if it it turns out that the court rules in in punk's favor and in Cabana's favor, wouldn't we have to pay them back? And
1: but no no WWE would never have to pay them back because WWE is complying with a subpoena. Mm-hmm. That is all that's going on here. Now could Punk countersue Amon for the lawyers' fees? Okay, I don't know. That's that would be a question that one of our lawyer friends could answer. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't possible. seem fair that if they're they're the one
2: who you know CM Punk and Cabana are the ones being sued. Why do they or why does Punk have to pay you know one hundred thousand dollars, one hundred twenty thousand dollars to def- defend because they created. Himself?
1: Well, because he created an undue burden on another group to try and bolster his defense. Like I could sue WWE and say, you have documents related to me. I need to have these things. They probably do. But WWE can come back and say, you're a distraction to what my people have to do all day. And that the argument basically was the court said, no, this is a fair request. But we also agree that WWE shouldn't have to take the whole burden of this request because it's going to cost a lot of money and hours and time. So it's, it's meeting in the middle. It's always possible, for instance, if Punk were to prove that WWE was secretly funding Amon's lawsuit, then maybe then he would have grounds to, you know, say, sue for uh, re- getting some of the money back. And, and, but that, that, that's a big if. And we
2: still don't know if this Scott Amon, who is the vice president of WWE's legal slash business affairs, we, we don't know if he's related in any way to Dr. Chris Amon, do we?
1: What gets even crazier is that his real name is C. Scott Amon, and the other guy is Christopher Amon. And so it's so confusing. And numerous people have asked me, are they brothers? And I I honestly have to say I don't know. I do think it is highly likely that a very high legal up guy and a guy who has a very um, prominent position in the medical team are probably brothers. And 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 it's it's a very common last name. Yeah, it's not it's not Smith or, or Jones or McMahon. Um, so it it seems to me like it's likely they are related to each other. And everyone I've talked to about that is always like, "Hmm, that's interesting," but no one has said. There's anything wrong about that? There's there's nothing unusual. I mean, and if you think about the way WWE is, there's lots of people that are related to each other, and neither Scott Amon or Christopher Amon are like board members or anything like that. Where usually you would you would disclose those sort of things. So uh, it's interesting. We could always ask WWE, and if I thought it was really in the public's interest, I would pursue it. But um, I think it's kind of a tangential thing. So if that were the case, what's,
2: would, would that be something in the interest <laughs> of of the, the the defendants here to bring up
1: is be say, hey, look, you're this, this doctor is, is the brother of just happens to be the brother of WB's vice president of legal affairs. I have wondered about that myself, and I've been surprised that I've never seen the word brother. I, I actually did a search today yeah. of the drive for the word brother, and I did not come up with anything. And part of that is because the way they have used Scott Amon has been very impartial. He has been used to give affidavits about the cost of things. But he hasn't ever been you know being pulled in to testify that you know we thought this was wrong, we thought this was right, anything like that. He's been used very much as a legal affairs guy. um and so it, it would be hard to say that anything he's done right now has been biased necessarily beyond what w w e normally would say is fair or not fair to themselves, but it, it's just an interesting case. I suggest people read. Uh, all the documents. What's great is Illinois is terrible for filing documents. And so up until now, we've had very few documents from the Illinois lawsuit. And luckily, some of the documents were filed as exhibits to the Connecticut lawsuit. And so we could actually read them and uh, we can follow them in real time. So I'm hoping to find out more. I was very surprised when I looked today at the, um, the Illinois lawsuit that uh, a new name had been added on. I don't know if you saw my tweet about this to the Illinois lawsuit. Uh, a person named cliff oh and uh, any guesses who cliff is Cliff compton it appears that it is cliff compton but not under the name cliff compton under his real name uh that uh gosh i'd have to i'll have to click on the link again to see what it is i think it starts with a t and i googled it and i didn't find anything and then somebody pointed out to me if you switch the i and the e on the uh, the name, suddenly what comes back is the trademark for the name Cliff Compton, the Wikipedia for Cliff Compton, like all these different things. So it's pretty clear that it's probably Cliff Compton, and it's not clear why he's being brought into this case. So I don't know and if that is it, his it's common Clifford Compton. Well, that's what it says on Wikipedia, but I don't think it is. Okay. <laughs> That's my point. Is I don't think his real name is what it says on Wikipedia because uh, what what shows up as, for instance, the register of the Cliff Compton trademark is a different name, and what is in this legal document that is, you know, subpoenaing people in the the Scott Colton Philip Jack Brooks case is a different name. So I think I, I think Cliff Compton's a work name or at least a uh, informal name. When they when they so, release people, don't they? when when w.com posts the article saying so-and-so has been released they usually
2: drop the real person the real name don't they and he's he's someone who who worked for wb and then since has been released correct
1: that is true that is true actually you know i have his i have the name i'm looking at right here it is uh treiber t-r-e-i-b-e-r or possibly T-R-I-E-B-E-R uh, because we're finding b- both spellings online. What's strange is he shows up under the the kind of date of service list uh, under the defendants, but he doesn't show up with an attorney name next to it, and it just shows that he had some activity on 810 where it said issue writ loud participant Treber Cliff. And really, I, I'm not
2: clear to if to that's what I just said. On W.com in the day in two thousand eight 2008 when he was released, it just says domino
1: yeah so i mean i think sometimes they like to use the real names when they're punishing people for wellness violations yeah. that's the most common time i've seen it um more than even when they're just letting somebody go so um but it I, so i'm not clear why he got pulled into this case um obviously he was a guest on art of wrestling several times yeah. um maybe he made a comment i don't know whether he's def- testifying for the defense or the uh plaintiffs uh but somehow his, his name got brought in so i'll, I'll be kind of curious to see if we see anything with that and uh be, be another thread that people can pull on here uh, but yeah it's an interesting case uh, I was a little disappointed nobody else found it I was very excited I did uh, so I think it just uh, you know if you're a, a budding WrestleNomics journalist out there just keep in mind there's so many public sources of really good information that nobody is bothering to go to yeah. and uh, you know it's it's funny to see you know, people arguing on Reddit over whether or not my article was copy and paste. Oh really? And things like that. Yeah. <laughs> just it's just funny to see these things because it's like, yeah, yeah I understand most people think wrestling news is just people parroting what Meltzer says and whatnot, but you know, there is still a lot of actual good original source journalism you can do. And even just summarizing what is happening to people plays a big role because it's tough sometimes to understand all the machinations of what go on uh kind of in a case like this. Absolutely.
2: I wonder if he's some sort of witness to Seeing the injury or something like that, if he had some sort of yeah, I mean he's friends with or at least was friends with Colt Kamana and CM Punk. Maybe he, you know, saw Punk while he had the staph infection and saw it, and maybe he's being brought into this because he's a wrestler and has
1: a background of knowledge to go with it. I don't know. You know, you could write a thousand clickbait articles sure. just just speculating why it is. In but uh, money, you, you could write them. Yeah. Well, uh, so I'm just telling, I'm, I'm handing this lead off. There I don't think this has really been publicly reported beyond my Twitter. So, you know, figure it out. Other people have, have you know, kind of uh, in dark Twitter sent me notes saying, hey, did you notice that, you know, Cabana and Punk you are using different lawyers and they had a big falling out? And, you know, people feel differently about that. Some people say, yeah, it happened. Other people are like, no, this hasn't happened. I'm not clear. Um, when I look at the, the page, I don't see that exact thing. But the person who kind of gave me that nudge-nudge was uh, somebody who does do a lot of investigative reporting. So uh, I'm outside of the wrestling sphere. And so I I do think that there might be something to that. So uh, if I find out exactly how to get copies of what some of these motions here, I'd love to see them in Cook County. But they're just – it's a black hole when it comes to information technology these days. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk about a different subject. What do you want to uh, hit on here? You, you've you've created quite the document here that our our Patreon supporters can obviously check out. It's fifteen pages this it's month, and pages. by month I mean week. And it is. Uh, what it do is you want to talk about next? Nearly forty six hundred words.
2: Um, well, WrestleMania or not WrestleMania, SummerSlam weekend is this weekend, and we just learned that New, the New York Post broke the story exclusively. They, if you want to talk about investigative reporting, here we go. The New York Post exclusively reported that SummerSlam is coming back to Brooklyn. Uh, this would be for the—this would be 2016, 17, and 18. This is, gonna be, this is the third year that they're going to do it, and they're going to do it again next year for the fourth straight year in 2018. Uh, Before that, it was in L.A. over and over again, wasn't it? Right. For I was just reading something like six straight years. It was in L.A. at the Staples Center.
1: Um, and, and it's been interesting because in the past— you know, the idea was we'll go out to LA and we can get a bunch of celebrities to sh- sit ringside at SummerSlam, and you know everyone loves it because it's you know it's LA in the summer and it's it's a cool thing and it makes us seem like a big time deal. And then they decided to go to New York because they got this great deal with Barclays and it was a lot of press. And I will say, I do feel like they do get more press, especially like New York Times articles, whenever they come to town for a big event. And uh, the the New York Times profile on gender today. I do wonder if that would have happened if they weren't in fact having an event this weekend for SummerSlam. Yeah,
2: that's a good point. Um, but they're so this year as well as the next year, they're doing four straight days at Barclays Center. Uh, that's NXT TakeOver, SummerSlam, Raw, and SmackDown. Four straight days. I, I did the three days last year—TakeOver, you know, SummerSlam, SummerSlam, and Raw—and it was pretty exhausting by the time Raw came around. But but they're going to do it, and tickets. At least as of yesterday, I haven't looked today, but as of yesterday, you could still buy first market tickets on Ticketmaster.com for all four of these events, which is way different than what was going on last year where tickets were selling out like within minutes because I, I was trying to get them at the time. And you had to be there, you know, oh, tickets are going on sale at this time on this day. And, you know, it, it's like a PWG thing. You got to be right there at the computer ready to buy them. Um, but I, I think a lot of that probably has to do with the ticket scalpers. Last year, maybe having learned their lesson from their experience of, of buying up all the tickets and then trying to resell them on the secondary market. Um,
1: and Absolutely. I, and and I, also I, and
2: another thing I'm not sure about, but I, th- I think ticket prices are quite a bit higher this year than last year, so that WWE has adjusted their ticket prices to you know sort of correct for all the ticket scalping that was going on
1: and in addition i think they've come into that agreement with uh, i think it was stubhub or one of the the right. ticket resellers that the you know to to better monitor exactly what's happening there and probably cut down on some of the I fraud i was or,
2: researching that before we recorded it, but i didn't
1: get to yeah. it yeah so i mean i think there's that i think it, for them it's really important that they go into a marketplace that they feel they can um that has a large enough base that they're gonna be able to draw a lot from. So WrestleMania weekend's great because you have a pretty captive audience and, you know, you're usually in a pretty big city when you're doing that. So it makes a lot of sense. And for something like SummerSlam, being in that New York audience, yeah, it's four straight days. But it's not necessarily the same people all four days. Some people, yeah. Yeah. yeah but, sure. you know, you're you're gonna have some people that are gonna wanna come for the beginning and some people that might be coming for the weekday events. And uh, I, I do think, you know, between the tri state area that you're gonna get near there it's a large enough population base that it makes sense. You know, you could never get away with doing this in like Minneapolis or something. There's just not enough people that would be coming from the Midwest to survive and, and really keep that, that level of uh, attendance up. So I I do think it's a decent idea, um, especially if you're only going to do it twice a year. So, you know, if you make a big run on WrestleMania weekend and you make a big run on SummerSlam, they're, you know, fairly far away from each other. So that's a good strategy for what you're doing. But I, I, I do agree that we are going to read a satur- reach a saturation point where, you know, suddenly the Royal Rumble's four days, and then SummerSlam's four days, and God forbid if someone tries to make Survivor Series into four days, you know, it, it will eventually burn itself out.
2: And just doing a real quick Google search here for secondary market tickets, I, I can find tickets not just on StubHub, but on Vivid Seats and on, what is this, SeatGeek, so... I don't know, maybe that uh, agreement with StubHub takes effect sometime in the future.
1: Well, I I don't think it's an exclusive agreement. I think it's just they might get some better um, second market analytics. And that gives them a better ability to both price tickets in marketplaces and then also offload tickets in marketplaces and then additionally get um, information on the consumers about who's buying these tickets. So I would almost see it more as a data sharing agreement okay. than anything this, else. This is March 28, 2017. WB and StubHub today announced they have
2: reached a multi-year agreement naming StubHub the company's exclusive ticket resale marketplace for fans in the U.S. and Canada.
1: Oh, Well, there you go. Well, I mean, I don't think there's anything that stops other people from selling their tickets on other places, though. I think it just, it's something to do with the way that the, the, the service, because I, I asked p- other people about this too, I remember at the time, because they were saying, you know, NFL has a similar deal. And what, what I was led to believe is it has a lot to do with data analytics and then the ability to possibly resell tickets when, you know, marketplaces aren't going so great. So but, what is, what is the meaning of exclusive in that sentence? Then I have no idea in the same,
2: it's, it's for entertainment purposes only. I see. Um, so reading this, there's a, a few thoughts came to mind, you know, they, they were at Stable Center for six years, and now they're going to be at uh, Barclays Center for four years. Um, and you think about when they talk about, oh, what's going to be the next WrestleMania city? And then uh, they announce, oh, New Orleans is going to be the next WrestleMania city, and they have the newspaper article comes out, and the mayor of New Orleans or whatever it is will say, wow, it's going to be great. They're going to bring in all this money to our local economy. And sort of the same thing in reading this New York Post article about uh, not the mayor of New York City, but you got the Bar- Barclays Center, someone, some office guy from the Barclays Center is you know, talking about what, it, what a great deal it is, and you've got WWE coming in here, and they do all these things with the community, and they're, they're talking about all the things that WWE does with the Boys and Girls Club, and they go to schools, and they visit hospitals and things like that. So when I think of what are the biggest pay-per-views for WWE, it's WrestleMania, SummerSlam, and Royal Rumble. So why isn't Royal Rumble got the same sort of deal where they, you know, do this in every city. And I guess this, this is based on the, the, the thought that, well, w- w- what's in it for WB to keep going back to the same city again and again? And you kind of mentioned it, well, maybe it gives them better access to, to media outlets like the New York Times and things like that. But plus, what, plus, what are they getting? Are they, get, are they getting a lower, are they getting a, a, a better deal on Barclays Center or are they actually getting
1: paid something to
2: stay in, in Barclays Center?
1: I'm sure that it's a deal where they can lock down the costs. You know, for if you if you're willing to book a building for three four years, I'm sure you can lock down the cost versus what it would cost if you were booking it the same year. So, so a, a lower rental or lease fee, or however they would. Yeah, work. yeah. I I think the opportunity cost would be much higher for them if they still decided to go to the same place, but they didn't book it a year in advance. Secondly, I don't think you can underestimate how important it is that WWE is based in Stanford and we're in New York here. Hmm. They're not that far from each other, and so. You know, it's Vince's backyard. And so I think there's an element of that very much, too, where um, it's much easier to uh, uh, both connect it to what's happening in WWE. You know, it's a shorter drive for for some of these executives or whatnot. But also, you know, think about if you're trying to wine and dine, exec, um, you know, investors or the press or whatnot. New York is much more in their ballywick than probably L.A. ever was. So I imagine it's much easier for them to you know kind of try and and hobnob with the people that they're trying to impress, especially as they continue to grow as a business and be treated more and more like a, a giant media company uh, in New York than it is in other places. I know when my company in um in Denmark wants to impress people we we hold a capital market stays in New York a lot. so it's not uncommon to try and you know kind of impress your investors in that market player area so I wouldn't be surprised if that's a little bit of it, too. It's just the idea that they're kind of in the backyard of WWE headquarters. And so it makes it easier for everything from the production people to the uh, you know, the back office staff. So there, there's probably some of it there. I, I don't know if it's something where you can always look at it and say, here's the 100 strategic reasons that they do this this way. As much as oftentimes it has to do with the guys that are in charge of booking live events and who they like and why they like it. So... You know, why did they go to UAE? Well, the guy that they hired to run their live events business used to manage the arena for UAE. What do you know? They started going there right after he got hired. That's why I was convinced they're going to have WrestleMania in Minneapolis because you know what? That guy left WWE and went to go work for the Minneapolis Viking Stadium. So a lot of times it just has to do with the whims and the whimsy of the people that book these events and who they like and why they like them. And I don't always know if it's a 100% economic decision as much as it is all the other factors that go into kind of those relationship building over time.
2: I would think if it's so advantageous for them to do this, SummerSlam in New York, WrestleMania, wherever it is, why wouldn't it be advantageous to do the same thing with the Royal Rumble to develop a relationship with a venue or a city and get discounts on the the venue or whatever? And and so your event becomes more profitable and then you're running – well, they did run – for last WrestleMania, which was in San Antonio, didn't they run? They did at least three straight days, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and, and they've done that for Royal Rumble in the past where they would do NXT spot show stuff. And then like well, the winners of that, a repeat city. Yeah, I, you know, I'm sure there's there's advantages and disadvantages. And some of it might just be that they feel that they're still in the shadow of WrestleMania. Some of it is that they it's just might so not close have, January to March slash April. Yeah. yeah, some of it might be that they just don't have the infrastructure built out to get this kind of bidding process going. Um, you know the fact that they went this year wasn't it this year that they went to the Alamo Dome and they were trying to do right. such a big uh, stay. And so, I still think that they're playing a little bit with what can they do with the Royal Rumble and um trying to decide how to make that marketable. And as they see, you know, more and more people want to come in internationally for it, that might change the way that they act. I mean, the other half of it being, I think it's really easy to sell to international fans. Hey, come to New York City; we'll be part of your adventure. Than it is even texas or something which may have certain uh, charm and allure but you know is not really as built out the same way new york is going to be for someone who's visiting from another country mm-hmm. but uh you know i would love if 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 uh they found more places I, I still think they're just playing with the formulas to be honest and so someone asked
2: me on twitter after millions this is my friend uh, andrew mullen uh, after the millions upon millions of dollars in renovations at MSG uh, why can't they do a pay-per-view at MSG and why do they continue to do this at, at the Barclays Center if, the, if MSG is this you know the ultimate venue for for the WWE why do they continue to go to Brooklyn at the, Bar- at the Barclays Center and why do they just continue to do house shows at MSG I know what the Meltzer answer is which is it's just it costs
1: too much money to do TV at MSG for whatever reason I think part of that is that there, there might be certain union regulations or in-house MSG regulations yeah. Um I don't know, you know, that's a very, I hate to say it, it it sounds rude to say it, but I think it's a very New York centric concern. I don't think anywhere else in the country really cares whether they're at MSG or Barclays because they're both big uh, modern arenas. And I think a lot of it has to do with the modernism in terms of how easy is it for our production people to get in? How easy is it for the wrestlers to get in? How easy is it for us to book the building and work with the staff and get the box seats and do all the stuff? People want to see that ceiling, though. They want to watch those matches and see that MSG ceiling up there while they watch it. There's a lot of nostalgia, and I'm not going to discount that, but I I think it's just a different industry now. I mean, MSG is part of a publicly traded company, isn't it? You know, the the MSG, like the whole New York company, whatever that's called. Uh, What am I thinking of? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a uh, it's an American sports and holding company that's based there. So it's it's the NASDAQ MSG is the name of it. It's the Madison Square Garden Company. So I think a lot of it would have to do with you know how does MSG as a company work, and you know how does Barclays work, and what's the difference between you know the ownership structures and the deals that they're offering. So I, I think there's there's a lot of nostalgia that people have that isn't necessarily um, overlaid with the financial. Um, Whims of what actually has to happen behind the scenes, and again, booking it for four days, maybe it's really hard to book a building like that for four consecutive days. And so, uh, as they move to that model, if they're going to be in New York, they'd rather be in the, mo- the the place where they can do it for four days in the same arena. Sure. Or you could do one event there. You could do the Summer Slam there. Ah, who knows? Well. Well, and and part of it too is you think about travel, think about lodging, think about the logistics. Um, and and then, like I say, whatever the production staff uh, requirements are for the building you're in, it could be very different. So maybe with the new renovations, it will change the way that people think about it. But it's it's to me, it's a very low concern thing. It's a little bit like when a certain city is just so angry that they never get a certain, you know, when Toronto is really angry that they don't get house shows or they don't get pay per views or whatnot. I I understand their concern, but I think in the larger scheme, it's not very relevant uh, to understanding the whole machinations of, of everything machinations is gonna be my word of the day today <laughs> still waiting for that wrestlemania in minneapolis huh i'm i'm i would love it but i i understand completely if people are like why would i fly to minneapolis in the middle of, of april and and come and and go to an event you know i can i don't think it's going to be a warm weather trip you know it's easy for me to my wife and i are looking forward to going to new orleans we'll be nice and warm in april Sounds good. you listened to the triple h conference call right I did. Did you? Did you listen to it? No. So uh, uh, I would. I would love to hear yeah. some of the uh, your takeaways from this. You didn't miss too much. Um, he talked about. I,
2: I'm always fascinated by these calls because he and he's been calling them the, an industry call, I guess for for whatever reason. And I, I I've said before, I feel like this is something. So totally opposite of what Vince McMahon would do, you know, to, to talk to the
1: wrestling media. Like he's talking to Mike Johnson and Dave Meltzer on this call. Well, I feel like it started off where they wanted to get local press to to call into these things. Yeah. And I, I feel like that kind of died off because I remember one of the very, very first ones. Sometimes you'll have an international media member. Yeah. Or I remember one of the first ones was like a Florida newspaper or something. Like, Orlando Times or something like that. You know, like, asked a question on it. But I feel like, over time, it's just been wrestling media is the ones that really care. And, uh, you know, everybody... I remember a Bleacher Report, I would have a big debate with my editor about, you know, why could I never be the guy to call into these things? Like, why was I not chosen to, to be part of it? So, you know, there is a little bit of favoritism to this. It's not like Russell Limick's radio yet is on that uh, media credentialed list. You were asking that, or who was asking that? I was like, asking that. Yeah. Like, you know, like, why? On there? Well, I just was like, you know, I would love, I would be happy to be the yeah. representative of our uh, organization here, and I might have some good questions, so. Uh, but... It, you know, I always had an arm's length relationship with all the, the outlets I worked for. So it, I never really felt like I was in a place to kind of put my foot down. But uh, Mike Johnson always uh, makes sure to get in. You know, he's, he's kind of becoming God. What was it? There's the woman, Helen uh, Crud. She at the White House, she would always get the first question every time. And Mike Johnson is like her. Sounds
2: familiar, but, but Mike Johnson was the first question uh, again on this call. Um, I, I, I just find it fascinating that he can. Helen Thomas. There you go. I just find it fascinating that he continues to change his views from, from, what it, from what his views were when he started doing these things, which if you go back to, I think it's May 2014, or no, it's February 2014. This is the first NXT conference call going. Is the first NXT TakeOver. This is just after the network launched where he, he said that the indie, indie scene becomes less and less of a factor all the time, and we're having to create the talent, and they're not just out there ready to get picked. He, he said sometimes it's easier to almost teach guys from day one and this is, this is the playbook conversation where he says that a lot of guys come in here and they want to run their playbook because they've been on the indies for years and years and they've been running their playbook. But when you come to our team, he says that you got to run our playbook. And that sounds kind of like maybe what was going on with Chris Hero and maybe why he ended up getting released uh, the first time. Um, but, but now here he is saying, you know, I like Gabe Sapolsky. And he's talking about Gabe Sapolsky by name. And he's talking about progress by name. And of course, we heard a few months back from George Berrios. Uh, he let it that. Slip that's for... my
1: favorite quote because it's like, how can anyone deny that there's a deal in place when George right. Berrios doesn't know a wristwatch from a wrist lock? Right. George mm-hmm. Berrios is not uh, watching VOD streams of pro wrestling at night. You know, and then out of the blue, he specifically mentions was it progress? He said progress and ICW. Yeah, like he just calls it out of nowhere, and it's like there's no way you randomly pull those names out of nothing unless you have a deal in place. So I, I, I love that line. Right. And so he said uh, he was talking about Gabe Sapolsky, and
2: uh, he said there's been a lot of speculation about Gabe Sapolsky, and that he likes what he does. And he, he went on in his usual spiel about how we want to work with people who want to cultivate talent, not just put on a show. And he talked about Dave Prezak as well. Uh, having him there, at the Mayon Classic. This Dave Prezak is this guy basically put together Shimmer, which is a independent uh, women's promotion,
1: and was uh, like a long time Midwest indie wrestling announcer, manager, announcer, all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, so, so here's my theory on Triple H. So February 2014, you you're, you started off your quotes from. Yeah. If you think about when the Performance Center opened, that was like July of 2013. Was the official opening in in Orlando. Right. So. Triple H has talked a lot about how that's his baby. That was his project. They basically said to him, okay, you have to go put together a business case. You have to put together a pitch to us on why this is a good investment. And that was a big learning thing for him to be like, oh, it's not as easy as me just running my mouth. I have to go be a businessman and executive and all this. So if you think about that, he he's working on that project from probably 2012 into 2013. And then less than a year later, it's 2014, and he's talking about NXT, and he's being asked, why don't you just use the indies? And he's just committed this company to tens of millions of dollars. He's just uprooted the entire thing from Tampa to Orlando. He's he's made a pretty big investment, and he's been spending every waking hour justifying this, this business case. And as someone who's worked on business cases before, I will say, you— only think that your solution is the right one, you know, because you you, kind of have to this is this is deathbed, that bed that eats people. If you give up on your dream, you you run the risk that you're, you know, going to going to drive yourself crazy because you've devoted so many hours to this. And so you create a narrative internally to yourself to try to justify why this was the right thing. So at the time, I think he would have been a little hypocritical in the view of what he'd been pitching everyone if he just said the Indies are good enough. Because right. he had just invested all this time and money and effort to kind of say, we have to do this ourselves. So I think some of this is, is the, the realization well, couldn't that he, – Well, couldn't he have said, well,
2: we, we, we need this performance center. We need this facility. Yeah, there's, there's really great talent on the indies, but they don't really have yet what it takes to, to be on the main roster. And that's why we need this facility. And, and maybe, yeah, they're on the indies and they've got some experience, but they really need to be finished off
1: at our facility. That sounds that like a though? a very seasoned executive speech that Triple H was not ready to give in 2014, you know, and and so I think after three years, when they see both the development curve being much slower than they expected, and, and that's basically
2: his excuse whenever somebody asks him about you know why is Finn Balor why is Nakamura still in NXT? Well, they're learning how to do entrances or whatever it is.
1: He, well, I mean he I think there's also the idea that they're seasoning the people around them, but uh oh, yeah. you know, sure. you know Nakamura I don't think anyone doubted you know, really needed the extra seasoning. I think they, they knew, though, that he was the big draw for their NXT touring brand. And so much like Asuka and other people, you can't just take them off and then expect this to live on its own. And the fact and, that and I think in the case of Nakamura, it, it was OK
2: to, to put him there or at least it was beneficial in this way in that when Nakamura left New Japan, there's a portion of the audience who's familiar with him. But to put him in NXT, you put him in NXT and it's sort of like a good middle ground. You put him in front of the NXT fans, some of whom aren't familiar with him, some of whom are. And, and then the, the ones who are are going to really react strongly
1: to him. It's, it's ECW, ECW syndrome. It, you can look like a huge star in a building of 1,500 people going crazy for you. Much better than a building of 9,000 people where only a portion of them care. And and it will make you seem like a bigger star, and then in time that can translate under a bigger stage. And I think Nakamura is doing that now, and he's done a good job of it. But I'm not surprised. I I just think a lot of this comes from the ego and hubris that happen with any executive. Triple H aside, is is natural, and especially when your money is where your mouth has been, <laughs> then you're you're stuck in a corner. And so I, I think some of it is that he didn't want to contradict himself, and also I don't think Triple H is the most um, open-minded guy when it comes to this stuff, you know, he's not somebody who lived and died on the Indies for years and years, and you know sees it right. that way. And so uh, he's going to be tinted through those 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 WWE colored glasses. And so there's a narrative around him too. So I, I'm not surprised that. Uh, and I think you know, especially would, at the time in years prior. There's a mentality within WWE
2: that. Oh, if you didn't do it here in WWE it doesn't really count and and the indies are you know
1: what, what is that bingo halls you wrestling in front of 100 people who cares and so getting back to like this Gabe question I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people have thought of this a lot like the Naylor situation where Triple H only spoke highly of Rob Naylor and he's only speaking highly of Gabe but at the same time it's not clear what position is available for people beyond just you can kind of come here and do a little bit of work and then Maybe there's something down the, ro- the road. maybe there's really not. Speak highly of Rob Naylor. When they uh, departed, uh, he he had a uh, oh. he. Yeah, yeah. He said he's he, he's like great to work with you. You come back anytime, something like that. On Where Twitter, did he he, that? on Twitter. Oh. Yeah, I, I seem to recall that being pre- pretty public and and being very. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not questioning that it happened. It was just a little bit before my time, I guess. Yeah, but it was just to me. I think that there's something to be said around. A there's there's always a version of politicking that's going on in these pro wrestling organizations which are really hard to kind of deal with the the just the idiosyncrasies of people. So like, you know, the two sides of John Cena where there's the one side of John Cena where he's this fun jovial Gives 100 percent of his time to the company always, and then there's the other side where you you know you have the JTG JTG stories or something where they where he comes off as this vindictive and selfish and and worried and paranoid guy, and it's like I think all these people like us have this great duality to them, but in wrestling this paranoid behavior is almost 24 seven, so I'm not surprised that sometimes Triple H or something uh, being exposed a little bit more in the media here comes off even more kind of, you know, playing things from all angles at all sides to different people at different times and uh, I contradictory. I that par- paranoid uh, behavior is
2: quite frequent within the wrestling uh, industry, even at the lowest levels.
1: Yeah, it's, and it, I think there's just something about that. So I see a lot of this as kind of the, like, they a lot of people praise their enemies, and they praise their friends, and everybody is seen as both a potential uh, collaborator and a challenge to their power and structure. And so the people that do, you know, that get the highest up in the company have either a protector, but then they also, you know, they, they, they only surround themselves with people that aren't going to eclipse them in some ways. And so it's like Kevin Dunn's stupidity or ignorance or whatever could also be matched with by saying that's exactly who Vince wants to have under him. He doesn't want to have a whiz bang guy that everyone's going to praise instead of him. You know, it's it's hard to say. I, I don't know if that's true. I think I think Dunn is maligned more than he's praised. But um, I, just that idea of just being in some structures, it's not built around the success of the company as much as it is around the pre- preservation of the executive elements that have been put in place.
2: Sure. But I, I think what we've seen is
1: Triple H's philosophy has evolved by the time that
2: they signed uh, Finn Balor, Tommy and Kevin Owens. I think that's that's the time where he starts to say things like the independent undercurrent of, of, of you know probably didn't say wrestling but of the business is vital, and now we're at the point where you know Gabe and, and progress are his friends. It's just such a, a 180, and I think I think, it, I think it, it does show that his mentality about talent has changed, and I think probably a lot of that is sort of on the, the buoyancy of NXT drawing actual live crowds being able to run live events beyond just the ones that they run in Florida in front of like 300 people or whatever, but being able to do the takeovers in, in big buildings that, you know, the, the first big house show they did at, at WrestleMania weekend. And you were there for that, right? That, that that's WrestleMania 31 weekend in 2015. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, absolutely. I think, I think there's something to that. I think at the same time, I think it's been humbling because I, I think, I I think they thought,
2: that, look, look, these guys are, can actually go on the road and, and draw something. And I think it now Triple H wasn't just the guy watching that happen watching some other other organization do that but he got to be the captain of the ship and it's his doing and it's his he gets to share in that success the credit of that success
1: oh for sure i think on the flip side the nxt tour has been become a double-edged sword right because once it became an actual touring brand then your developmental territory has a big flaw to it because how do you how do you graduate people if they're your stars and are you still building stars and whatnot and that was a very different puzzle I think to figure out than what they had originally started with the the concept of what NXT would be and at the same time I don't think they've been as successful of grooming brand new talent as they hope they were going to be and even you know attracting new talent and I think honestly it should have always been a five-year timeline because it takes a long time to see that come through. And just because they kind of had a once-in-a-lifetime boom coming out of OVW at one point, it, it's tough to compare it to now. But I, I think by if by 2019 we don't see, you know, 10 legitimately unique stars coming out of NXT that would not have gotten in this business if it wasn't for the Performance Center, that will be, you know, really telling about whether or not they've become a success. But, you know, so even someone like Alexa Bliss at this year's business performance partner summit they used her as their big example was she was someone that they felt like they had kind of taken from from start to finish because even a sasha banks or something isn't a great example because she did indie work before she came to wwe right um charlotte's one too right i don't I don't think she had too much wrestling experience before she came to the bench. she didn't so but i i think all the second general as well Well, I think all the second generation people are a little, you know, a Cody Rhodes or Charlotte or something that's I don't know if they consider or Bo Dallas or a a Husky Harris, you know, I don't know if they consider that or even a Roman Reigns, you know, if that's a a fair. This is FCW stuff, I think. Yeah. But I just mean, I don't know if they're as fair as to say, you know, this is someone, you know, we're taking. I think they're looking for those examples of someone who would not have gotten in this business if they weren't able to attract them and bring them into the performance center. And then they crafted them into a wrestler.
2: Right. And and to your point about the future, there's they have all these international signees that they've taken in from India, China and just about any other country.
1: you can. Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. We talked no, it, it will be interesting. It will be very interesting. And and I think they have been a little bit humbled by the fact that there is such a a talent difference between the very best talent that came from the indies and the very best talent they're able to groom themselves. You know, the Chad Gables of the world are the very small exception of people that could really operate at the very top level compared to the Nakamura's, the Finn Balor's, the Kevin Owens, the Sami Zaynes, and so forth and so on. Yeah. So, so like with the point you're making, maybe it's a little
2: quick on the trigger to start questioning the performance center. Like, what happens in a lot of discussions about the performance center? It comes up, well, this thing costs millions and millions of dollars, and and where's the return on investment? Well, maybe the return on investment, we really need to wait a few years, just like kind of any business investment. It's going to lose money for a while at first, but then it should pay off big after a few years.
1: I mean, I'm not saying I don't like the other idea that maybe when we talked about before of the cut half the people, see which half decide to go to the Indies, work it out themselves and then come in. It could be – you could also make the argument maybe they're pampering them too much there in that they are being put in a system that is just not really teaching them the survival and the success skills that they need. Because you can think that you're teaching artists how to be artists, but it's not always as easy as just actually saying I want you to go out there and make art and survive by it. So. And, and a point that I was going to raise, we didn't get to, uh, I think it was last week, was I, I think there's a way
2: that W E could work it out to have a, a lot of these people, including these, I think especially you would, you would want the original from scratch PC people to go out on the indies, go out onto whatever approved indies that WWE approves of, develop these relationships with a handful of indies, and then send your PC guys out there to whatever indie promotion, and then they, they can wrestle there and they can wrestle quality opponents. I mean, they would have to... Vet it to make sure that they were, I guess, you know, wrestling somebody that they felt was safe for their, for their talent to wrestle. I'm sure it raises all sorts of issues, but.
1: Well, and, and it did, you know, years ago they did this with Puerto Rico where they would send talent they weren't using down to Puerto Rico. And then uh, some of the guys maybe. got hurt while they're in the ring. And they tried to sue WWE, saying basically, you told us to go to Puerto Rico. Shouldn't you be the one to pay for our surgery because we got hurt? And so we, we have seen a little bit of this before. I mean, it, I agree. It would be great. And I just, obviously – like is...
2: Go on the indies and wrestle. The good indies would be a far better learning experience – or maybe you know maybe both have value but both have different value that you both that you want your talents to, to both ex, to experience you want you want them to have the Florida loop thing You want them to go around the loop in, in Florida and work with everybody that you want them to work with who are your guys and then send them on the indies which is the place where a lot of your talents who are top talents now learned a lot and got really good
1: yeah it'll just be a question of uh, for what a WWE performance is about today in a television format do they get those right set of skills? And so, you know, are they becoming good at the promos and they're off camera talking to business people and everything else that they also think is really important today? And it's it's a very different industry in some ways. It's about becoming this entertainer more than a wrestler. And so I think some of this helps them a lot with the wrestler aspect, helps them a lot with the uh, hustle aspect of, you know, why don't I have merch? I need to go bug someone about my merch. Um, rather than the lackadaisical, I have a contract. I don't. I shouldn't make any waves right now, and uh, you know I think it's tough for a lot of people just to kind of learn this is a different environment. And especially if you're coming from another performance athlete uh, uh, type environment, for some people like the amateur wrestlers, I think they excel because amateur wrestling doesn't have that much money behind it. But the football players and whatnot, they might struggle a lot because this is not nearly as glamorous. Tell me a little bit about this um uh, the debate over the binge watching going on with the Mae Young Classic there was a debate. I, I uh, Dave asked him you know what the what the deal was
2: with why they were putting out the Mae Young Classic in this binge watching format. Uh, and Triple H answered that you know when they when they looked at the viewership. He didn't, put it like this but when they looked at the viewership for the cruiserweight classic it looked like it 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 waned as the tournament went on what did he actually say what we found with the cruiserweight thing which is the cruiserweight classic is as much as people love the tournament some of it started to wane as you got into the later weeks so and what i take from that and i try to corroborate by looking at some google trends is that it looks like interest waned in the middle which i think reflects my own viewing of the tournament. Like I watched Bractology and I loved it. I thought it was great. I think I might have watched the first couple rounds or something or the first couple shows of the first round. And then I I don't think I don't know that I watched at all like the semifinals and stuff like that. But I definitely watched the final and, and when you look at Google Trends, the biggest spike is around the final and there's some smaller spikes, like the number two and number three spikes are early on, and then there's some stuff in the middle but it's lower than the rest.
1: And and I just – by debate, I mean a lot of people were saying you have the show in the can. You know when your finale is going to be. And the reason your finale is on that date is because you have to fly all these people back for it. So you've already bought plane tickets. You've already arranged a lot of people's schedules. But yet you're waiting till three weeks out and then you're binging the show rather than you actually had eight weeks. You could get done one a week. Why not do that? And Triple H's answer is basically we're trying an experiment. We think that people would rather – have three weeks of interest in something and choose to consume as much content as we're d- running a tournament for three weeks. Then say a tournament is eight weeks and then realize that people are kind of engaged in the beginning and they lose interest and they come back at the end. So I, I think it's a neat experiment. I think I like that answer because it, it suggests a real um, intentionality to what they're doing and looking at some data and analytics and kind of processing I, I guess what they've the learned
2: thought is if as they a streaming put it service. Eight weeks in advance,
1: you wouldn't, be as hyped up about
2: it as if if they put it out four weeks in advance so you've consumed it all in a smaller amount of time and then that's probably going to generate some conversation at least on the internet for whatever that's worth and it's going to get I think that's what he says
1: here it's going to get people excited and i i agree though i feel like it's too much content you know four hours is a lot to get through i think you know just three hours in a week would probably be my limit so four hours is a lot for me to devote to a women's tournament and i'll be very interested to see uh, whether or not that that holds my interest for that much, um, and I don't mean that as as a derogatory thing towards women as much as just any kind of tournament, you would have to have something really exciting for me to be devoting that much time in that short period to, and be it a Dune miniseries or Game of Thrones or you know some other um, the history of math, you know it's just tough for me to to consume that much information in a short period, but uh, I think it's cool, and I mean when I read. I just read an interview with the head of Netflix and one of the things he talked about was he found that people like to binge watch television shows, but you know what they watch as soon as they finish a a A television show? A movie. And so his whole point was that there's such a difference between the way that people seem to consume movies versus television shows that movies in some cases are like palate cleansers for people. And while television shows still actually represent the majority of the the viewing that people are doing on Netflix, these movies help break them up. Like people don't like to go TV show to TV show. And so it's just kind of interesting to say, these are observations that streaming services are making and they're tailoring the way that they develop content. They suggest content, they program content according to it. So, uh, love it or hate it, I like the fact that WWE is is going out on the limb and trying to adapt to be a streaming service and see how this do an experiment with intentionality, and it's a low stakes thing to me. So I think so it's a great this, idea. This is
2: four weeks of TV, as it were, that you're gonna get to watch in one week before the final. Not I suppose what I may have said uh, earlier.
1: So it will be it will be interesting to see how it all works. Um, and and of course, I think watching the Google trends will be kind of neat to maybe do a comparison to say, here's what CWC look like from week one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and here's what May Young look yeah. like for these weeks, and uh, see what trends we see. I think you might have a uh, your makings of an article there that uh, we've now publicly displayed. So any other aspiring to beat edit this right on our final recording. <laughs> Um, any other big quotes from the uh, the, the, the uh, media call? I think
2: that's it. Yeah. Triple H also did, I don't know if we want to talk about New Japan first, but Triple H also did a, an interview with CBS Sports that just dropped just before we started recording where it looks like they, they tried to ask him some questions about New Japan, but he didn't really get into too much substance. I guess, so his response to a question about what's the number two promotion uh, in pro wrestling? And uh, he said, it, basically he said it's NXT. And... Uh, talking about new japan he's he's putting over guys that he has now like kyle o'reilly and alistair black and and nakamura basically saying that you know the reason why those guys are here is because they can do things that nobody else can do it's not about the style of of new japan or anything like that and uh, i guess this is the quote that he said towards the end of that article for cbs sports Um, he said i can look at 20 other people in that same organization he's referring to new japan or in many of those places and think i don't really care about them it's not because they're not great it's just they don't bring the game to the table. Nakamura does, Kyle O'Reilly does, Aleister Black does, Drew McIntyre does. So it's I don't know. It's a very corporate expected answer.
1: Well, that's my point. Is I think if you interview Dave Meltzer and you got this answer, that's a scandal. If you interview Triple H, who works for WWE, has designed NXT, has personally recruited and 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 you know been sold on a lot of these people. Of course, he's going to say this. What other what wrestling promoters shouldn't say that their best, you know, the second best one to them is is their show from the week before. I want to hear Triple H's um, star ratings for the g climax. That's what I wanted to hear. But and that's the other thing is I don't think he's ever really been a giant fan of Japanese wrestling. I think a Daniel Bryan or something who's always had much more of a streak of being honest, or even a Chris Jericho who you could argue has been a pretty good company man a lot of the time. He would probably have a much more um, nuanced. Take on what he thinks is happening is the difference between those those formats and, and types, but uh, I'm not surprised that Triple H says that the second biggest is NXT, and I agree. You know, you can look at other metrics and say which one can sell out 10,000 people more than once a year, which which one can uh, have all of these big stars in a country and whatnot. So, but NXT is a developmental brand where they keep a couple stars on to keep touring with, and so it's not a really fair comparison there. Uh, in my my book, but it's interesting. It's an interesting comment, and it it kind of says a little bit about you know how proud he is of what they're doing and and who he thinks is interesting. I always think it's important when you look at these things, pay attention to what names get called out by the executives because uh, better or worse, that means that they have high expectations for those people. And uh, I, the only I, I would think Jinder Mahal is probably the only guy I can think of where you didn't see it coming, with the exception of you know the fact that um you know he and Gronk did that little angle at WrestleMania. You know, that was like the first time we saw something with Jinder where he wasn't being treated um, as an absolute nobody in the, the Fed, where at least they chose to focus on him for a period of time of an angle. So I, I just think, you know, most of the time, if he says Drew McIntyre and, and Alistair and Kyle, that says a lot about what he thinks of the, the possibility of those guys. It'll be interesting to see if they uh, live up to and it. And by the time
2: most people listen to this, we might have Adam Cole in NXT as well. I'm going to move on to Daniel Bryan.
1: Yeah, let's talk about Daniel Bryan's interview. Um, he did. There was first there was an interview with the Bellas. Um, what's what service was the Bellas interview with? A new podcast called From the Top Rope, I believe. Or they interviewed both both okay. Nikki and, Brie were and then,
2: over the phone at the same time.
1: And then later, Daniel Bryan's on the Edge and Christian podcast, and I was actually listening to that right when you called me, um, where he was talking about you know kind of people in WWE that were underutilized. But uh, a little bit earlier, he was on the edge in Christian one talking about some other wrestlers. So first, what the Bella said about Daniel Bryan, since we can't go show without talking about right. Daniel Bryan's brain. Well,
2: things aren't looking good for you and your your prediction here, which was just just to remind everybody you you think Daniel Bryan's never going to wrestle again.
1: I said that WWE would make uh, him a big money offer and that he would he would double down a with Newsday them. Tuesday being wrestling talent. Yes, and yes, it is looking very poor for that, and it's looking very poor for my other prediction that CM Punk will settle and come back to WWE. So right now, Chris Harrington, so, so known Bri, liar, uh,
2: his his wife says that he he told Brian, you know, you have a, you have a daughter, but if the doctors give you the go, go ahead. And she, she said that um, she really loves to wrestle, and then if somebody told he, told her that she couldn't wrestle anymore, you know, she'd be really upset, and she can understand where where he's coming
1: from. So that was, I believe, yesterday that came out. Well, and, and she, she'd she only be, you know, they, they walked away from WWE. I think people always forget that, that like they signed there they with the company. They Dallas. left WWE and kind of tried to, yeah, and tried to go out on their own, kind of discovered there wasn't a big world out there interested in these twins and then came back and discovered a much bigger world that was interested in them with wrestling. And his passion would, you know, conservatively, is logarithmically larger than hers (laughs) for wrestling. You know, somebody who's dedicated their life around it And um, so it's not surprising to say, you know, if she a little bit understands his passion, that he is so passionate about it and nothing kind of stirs your passion up more than when you can't do something. Right. You get so burnt out when you're doing it all the time. But then when you take it away for a while, that's all you can think about. And you're obsessive and, and, you know, you're around it. And people even talking about, you know, Daniel Bryan didn't want to go to those retirement shows that they booked for him. Because he didn't like being that close to wrestling, but not Daniel being Brian able to do it. Like it. I and it was so,
2: MSG and, or something like that.
1: See, that's why they can't run an MSG is because uh, it, it, it messes yeah. with people's minds. But he's doing a hyperbolic Hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen chamber. Uh, hyperbolic,
0: yeah. Hyperbaric, Hyperbaric oxygen, oxygen, oxygen chamber.
1: chamber. And he's done yeah and and they were saying that's probably even just since like april so if you think about that that's that's a lot per you know several times a week almost um and looking for research that says he's going to be okay to wrestle i still have yet to hear about any actual medical clearance about exactly how new japan decides that somebody doesn't have a concussion or is is capable of wrestling um And as you know, some people, even Dave on the board today, people were talking about it and Dr. Maroon and kind of painting out these conspiracy theories. And Dave just wrote, maybe Joseph Maroon is just a doctor who doesn't think he should wrestle because he's a doctor and doesn't think he should wrestle. And like it's not it's not so much a giant conspiracy theory as that in his medical opinion, based on the information he had, that was what he came to. And yeah, maybe he's unlikely to change his mind, but that's just what a doctor's going to decide. You know, when he went and saw all these doctors, several of them didn't think he should wrestle. Then he found others that did. So it's it's going to be a um, it's of course not a binary thing. Uh, and he obviously has has not decided to be done with this. He has not moved on to a different passion in his life that is all consuming. It appears like. And so Brian himself was on the Edge and Christian podcast, uh, which
2: I believe dropped today. And made it pretty clear. He, he said, I'm, I'm contemplating getting back into wrestling. I don't think that's a real secret. Like that pretty much seals what everybody
1: expected anyway. Well, and, and then and the people he then compared talking about guys that stay in wrestling yeah. he's like, look at Terry Funk, look at Jerry Lawler, look at uh, Tenru, and was just talking about how, you know, Terry Funk found a way to do a match with Jerry Lawler um uh, two years yeah. ago where he threw the fireball yeah and I, I was actually tweeting about that um earlier this week so brian must be secretly watching my my uh my twitter um no i don't remember, believe remember that When for he dropped that fact but uh, yeah I'm
2: talking smack about um
1: oh that's right the, the wrestlers who
2: wrestle the most matches in a year are the ones who get hurt the next year often yeah yes are, yeah, yeah, there was that one fan, there clearly. too
1: but uh, yeah, just talking about, you know, Terry Funk and Tenru and Lawler. And yeah, those are guys that wrestled into their 60s who had um, all of them had stints where, you know, they had some kind of little injury, but uh, just kind of found ways to adopt their style. And, and you know, especially just talking a lot as, as I was reading the interview is just about the idea of being who you are and making that your character in wrestling and how a Tenru chose that. But like a lot of other guys out there don't seem like they are their style of wrestling, rather they're wrestling a the style that yeah. they've been told well, to wrestle. Once he kind of
2: critiqued WWE's,
1: I don't know, creative philosophy, saying you know, WWE wrestlers,
2: their styles really have nothing to do with who they are as characters or who they are as, as people. He said that's a, it's a disconnect for him because he was talking about how uh, Tenru's, you know, he came from sumo, and, and Tenru does do like the, those sumo slaps. He charges the guy into the, into the corner, but he's, he's making the point that, you know, look, look at Lawler and Terry Funk and how they wrestle in a way that projects what their character is about. And WB doesn't really do that. And WWE kind of has, he
1: didn't say this, but WWE kind of has a very similar
2: style across everybody.
1: Well, yeah, the way that they teach guys to strike each other and whatnot, you're, you're going to see a lot of u- uniformity. And it is, you know, like Lawler would always have the story about, like, he doesn't throw chops. You know, he throws punches because in a fight you throw a punch. And that was Lawler's logic. And, and you know, hell, Jerry Lawler throws freaking awesome punches so you know it worked for him he found it and terry funk of course throws those insane punches those yeah, drunken absolutely. punches that uh, are just legendary botans. yeah but uh you know and i thought it was interesting daniel talking about uh zach saber jr obviously somebody he would have seen during the cruiserweight classic but uh just really praising him it sounded yeah, like yeah, in yeah, the he interview. he's watching the g1 and uh, seeing
2: things that zach saber jr did i think they, they wrestle each other at, at some point Almost ten years ago, when Zack Saber Jr. was very young and still, you know, budding in his career, but uh, he talked about how how he wants to, if he goes back to the ring, he wants to have a a safer style, and he's thinking about what that what that is, and that's why he brought up Terry Funk and, and Jerry Lawler. But uh he was watching Zack Saber Jr. and seeing some of the mat wrestling based things that he did, and sort of saying, oh my god, he's
1: doing things that I wanted to do, but better. They had two matches. In fact, they uh, wrestled. In- they wrestled on March second, two thousand eight, in a best two out of three falls match in uh, wrestling in Coventry, uh, in the UK, and then a few days—I'm sorry—a year later, March seventh, two thousand nine, at WXW, in the 16 karat gold tournament quarterfinals, they wrestled. So uh, they did have two sabbatical matches. from WWE, right?
2: At least the latter
1: one. Yeah, two thousand nine would have been. Yeah, yeah, but um. No, that's that's a great uh, example of uh, just, I, I think Brian is someone who is, is funny because he's always so passionate about wrestling, and if anything, he seems to kind of go thing to thing. Because I remember a couple of years ago, it was all about CMLL and how excited he was about CMLL, and now it's like the G1's over, so he's so excited about the G1. The and so, uh, yeah, he, he's prone to excitement over whatever is the you, hot you thing at the time. Osprey in, and, uh, in, in Australia,
2: which, if you heard about that, Will ospreay's saying he's going to move to Australia and he wants to, you know, build the independence scene in Australia and give him some buzz and stuff like that. And, and Brian's aware of that. And,
1: you know, he's somebody who obviously pays attention to the business and what's going on. It's fascinating when you think about it, because a couple of years ago, I think we would have really thought that it would be the death of the indies. You know, just with the the as as wrestling became less popular overall, as uh, uh, television and media kind of becomes even more expansive and accessible and cheap. And just as less and less, you know, federations were out there as mega, mega places that you could, could make money. And so there's less of these kind of secondary stars that were kind of like holding up the indie scene. Um, I, I don't know if I would have guessed in 2008, 2009 that wrestling would, on the indie scene would have developed in the direction it did. And so it's kind of fascinating that guys kind of think they can revive places like Australia at this point in time. And um, I I think it's great that, you know, they're encouraged and excited by that. We'll be curious to see if we see the boon of wrestling schools the way we did, you know, 10, 15 years ago where, you know, there was wrestling schools in every little city by anybody, including lots of people that never really made it out of their town. So – uh it'll be it'll be fascinating to see kind of what that development looks like and i know that there's you know guys in wwe who have now kind of figured out hey we can open up a wrestling school and still be a wwe contracted wrestler and so you know i think Heath slater just did that and um you know rollins did it you know mr hughes of all people you know kind of opened up the school and and Pumped out some talent, the Dudleys did, you know, the Booker T, you know, there's a lot of these people that have been doing that. So it's kind of interesting to see the next generation kind of coming through now of uh, talent that is being trained by the the other talent. And we'll just see what it looks like. And, hey, I'm I'm all for having more forms of wrestling and, you know, maybe even more regional stuff happening. So it's exciting on that front for sure. Junior um, Mahal in The New York Times, you told me you you tweeted me this today and. Literally, really? my jaw was agape. I, I couldn't believe that, you, that there was seriously a Jinder Mahal. Like, he has gotten more than any champion I can think of in the last 10 years. He has gotten more buzz, even compared to CM Punk. CM Punk got a lot of stuff, but rarely was it yeah. in the mainstream. You know, it was the Rolling Stone or versus the New York Times. Yeah, or ESPN. And so I, I've been really impressed at how much – press they've been able to get out of Jinder Mahal. And it's clear that, you know, he's working closely with the marketing department in WWE and they are going out of their way to try to sell this story to everyone from the Times of India to the New York Times.
2: You read this, right? It's a it's a profile by the New York Times. It looks like they they went to some events, right? And they even talked to some fans. They they talked to Jinder Mahal himself, of course. They talked to Triple H, Stephanie and Michelle Wilson. I I think that's everyone, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, Michelle Wilson had a quote where she said, "I'm the chief's, the company's chief revenue and marketing officer, and we hope to return to India for at least one event this year." And she said, "There's about 60 million viewers in India that watch WWE programming every really? week," and that number, yeah, that number really surprised me because uh, just in April of this year, Ed Wells, the international EVP, said that there was 13 million that watched Raw weekly. And more or less that was implied as that's like, you know, the worldwide. most in the world and worldwide. Yeah, that the 13 million was. And so suddenly we had the 60 in million India, number. And so just one program. One of,
2: no, that's all, all programming. So just you, one. The 13 million is, yeah. is just raw worldwide. And the 60 million, according to Michelle Wilson, is just India. Uh, all
1: WWE programming. So there's two interpretations of this. One is she said 16 and it got oh. transcribed as 60 and that's possible you know that in in all sorts yeah. of environments that would happen and and if you're talking about indian viewership i could say there's 60 i could say there's 66 i can say there's 69 who's going to prove me wrong um so there's that and then the second interpretation is they're including social media in that number and we know that there's an enormous amount of social media consumption and that India is the largest consumer of that that social media. So I could see getting to sixty million if you add in a whole bunch of YouTube every, every and Twitter. Indian something
2: YouTube view in a given week,
1: for, maybe. For every, maybe. Every clip, so I thought that which just doesn't seem quite fair. But. Yeah. So. The, So it seems like an absurd number. It seems like a marketing number. She's a marketing officer. So it's not like it's a a SEC filed comment or something like that. Um, But I I thought that was interesting. And and somebody found me even a a July 2015 article where they said something about like 85% of 10 sports viewerships comes from the telecast of WWE matches. And it's a a technical article because it's really talking about like gross rating points and TAMs and all sorts of things. Um, but basically it was saying that wrestling was a big part of 10 Sports' um, appeal in terms of the getting the people to watch the programming and that if it wasn't in Team India playing cricket, wrestling did really well. So there is something to be said about the popularity of television programming of WWE, which is why they launched, of course, their um, the new weekly Hindi show that they have. On Sundays and what and stuff like that So th- they're clearly big on that And I think sometimes that's what people mistake when they talk about The India strategy, is that they th- Mistake it for being the WWE network In India, which is what investors like to Talk about, but I don't think WWE is really As hot on it as as uh, The television of value, and again I'll point out to people, by 2019 The Indian contract for TV is probably going to be Worth about $34 million, and the UK contract for TV is probably going to be worth About $33 million. so in the next few years here, India's television contract will probably be worth more than the U.K. The U.K. will still generate a lot more revenue because they're going to have a much more robust live events and merchandise business. But uh, there's something to be said about their television uh, property there.
2: So also in this article, there are quotes from – Triple H and, and Stephanie, uh, the article started to uh, you know talk about you know all the the heel stuff with with gender and all the heel reactions they're trying to, to get for him. Like this this past Tuesday on SmackDown, they had this Indian Independence Day, right? And they had this big uh, celebration and and uh, this woman
1: with bhangra uh, dancers. And this woman got in the ring and and sang the um. We we had a championship bhangra team at my school. Did you know that? Bhangra. Bhangra it's the dancing compete. yeah 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 university oh, wow. of rochester yes they compete U- university of rochester had a championship bhangra wow. dancing team so uh i i i am always at home when a, a bhangra there dance breaks out but, but uh they started talking about all the heel <laughs> stuff and then they're referring
2: to trump and then they're, they're talking about the immigrate the heated immigration rhetoric yeah did you think did you think the trump thing was kind of uh shoehorned in there uh, a little bit Well, I guess they're talking about the immigration ban. There's something in the article saying he wants to, the president wants to cut legal immigration in half or something like that.
1: Which I well, guess so. I think I when just,
2: you're being xenophobic, I think it's rough. Really, really I think <laughs> you're the New York Times. Well, no, that's true. I Times. just
1: felt like the New York Times felt the need to connect the wrestling storyline to the political storyline. A little bit more on the nose than maybe it was really there. But I I don't disagree it's a xenophobic storyline, and I don't disagree that they use the word immigrants a lot. But I don't think at any point was there a discussion about whether Trump's immigrant policy was going to change for the better or for the worse as a WWE storyline. But so Triple
2: H says, but we're we're more worried about entertainment and pop culture than we are about politics and pop culture, just kind of dismissing. Whether or not, I guess the I think the defense is well, we we tackle things in, in pop culture and we're just trying to entertain people. And I think their defense is well, it it doesn't really affect these larger social issues. And you've got Stephanie McMahon saying we're really no different than a great book, a great play, a great movie, an opera. Uh, we're even more applicable to ballet. Uh, we tell stories of protagonists versus antagonists with conflict resolution. The only difference is it happens inside a ring. Um, and I think that, that makes it sound like, well, it, it's all okay because pro wrestling is, is a legitimate art form, a legitimate medium, which I, I would agree with. But that doesn't mean that you can't still make, I don't know, racist and xenophobic or whatever uh, novels, books, um, ballets, operas, movies, plays, which, which I think is the area that, that they're uh, dealing with when they have, for example, an Indian Independence Day celebration that they're trying to get Americans to boo for the sake of it. Oh,
1: sure, sure. And and honestly, what I would say to everybody is you can either go interview a WWE executive or you can go sit down for two hours and watch that business partner summit and you're going to get almost the same sound bites is they choose they choose their marketing message in April and it's the hero in us all and it's the commonality of hero tales, whether it's Star Wars or Katniss Everdeen, you know, and they go through and and it's funny because you see the same quotes over and over again so at times i feel like a reporter asks a question and they choose the stock answer out of the box for the marketing message of the year and it's sometimes a good fit and sometimes it's not as good of a fit but neither one of them is really giving an honest answer about the value of professional wrestling society it's it's a marketing answer for a marketing company from a marketing executive and so I, I'm always – I agree with you completely that xenophobic storylines are an example of a professional wrestling um, artifact that maybe is – could be left behind the same way racist stereotypes in wrestling could be left behind. And it doesn't necessarily impair our ability to watch wrestling because there's still enough there without I
2: mean, it. This is um, I would
1: say – I believe
2: we just said uh, on, a, on a moral basis and on like an aesthetic basis. But I would say even an economic basis. Like why – don't you think it would – Engage the Indian audience better if they didn't do what they're doing with Jinder Mahal if they didn't you know
1: Well, what that's that's the hardest part is that we have very Despite our super connected yeah. internet age We still have a very poor understanding of how media messages are playing in other countries and how our entertainment is being consumed in other countries and what the messages people take away from that is. So when the Chinese watch house of cards, it's interesting to think about, do they take away that that government is inherently corrupt and the most corrupt people are able to rise to the top? Or do they take away that the United States is full of corrupt people? You know, I don't know. But both of the you know, the show is there. So there's a, there's a story to be told. And so I would love if we had better understanding in India as if they're a monolithic people, which they're, of course, not. But of just how are these things being received and what is the messages that are going against it? So it, what's funny is when you read this Times of India article, you know, what the what like the three stars that are called out in it is. I'm sorry, not Times of India, the Indian television article. They mentioned John Cena. They mention a guy named the Big Shah, which I assume is the big show. And uh, they mentioned Great Kali. And just about how Great Collie has brought this sport to them. So... It's it's interesting. So I think that's the other half of it is is that you know there was a Dara thing and all that back in the day, but for a lot of people I think professional wrestling on television seems to be somewhat. No, there's new. 60 million people watching it. That's like a huge percentage of their overall 1.3 billion population. So it would seem. So it would seem. Well, let's 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 break that down. So uh, they're about four times the size. Yeah, then that's a lot larger percentage. What am I thinking? Them, yeah, I was going to say the people who watch it in the U.S. yeah. The United yeah. States. Yeah. 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 No, that's that's an that's. Cause that would only be 15 million here. And we're lucky if we had billion, what, 3 million, 60 million of one you point know, three billion is about 5%. Yeah. So 5% of 300 some million would be. Yeah. So a different, different about 1% number for sure. In the, the U S yeah. So, um, but I, I, agree there there's, I, I wish we had better understanding of how an angle like that is actually playing out in India. And I don't actually believe that WWE themselves has much better understanding of how it's being perceived and accepted and felt
2: so it'd be curious
1: about, that they're doing a good job yeah I mean that's they, they, they have an office in Mumbai they have Ed Wells doing international so you know if I was them I would I would get my my ear to the floor a little bit closer because as people were pointing out what would be the things that would cause problems for China WWE Network and I think somebody brought up you know right. Tibet you know, would obviously be a big one. But xenophobic, nationalistic angles, that can be one of the triggers. So it will be interesting to see um, if there's an issue with that in the future. You know, like I said, sex would be one of them. But uh, nationalistic angles, that could be one of the big ones. That could be a potter keg. And they're going to be watching
2: on PPTV. They're going to be watching everything live. And they already are watching everything live. So if so, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is, I if, mean, if something happens that would be, you know, offensive to the Chinese government or whatever,
1: there's there's not a, a tape delay to edit it out. Well, the service turns <laughs> okay. off is what happens. Is that what We've happens? These, oh, wow. I mean, that's literally what happens. Is yeah, yeah, just services disappear. They get turned off. They don't work anymore. So, is there like a, a, a <laughs> so, Chinese government
2: official, was, like watching every piece of live program that's going on, and just with their finger on the button, just in case something happens, just turn it off.
1: Well, I think it. I think it happens more retrospectively than uh, you know. Okay. Next week, okay. you go there and it's not there. And uh, again, it's it. it, it I, I think sometimes it's easy to put a lot of logic to why these things happen versus all of the the things that are happening behind the scenes to being who's in power, who's not in power, who who's comfortable with the message, who's not comfortable with the message. You know, just like uh, imagine imagine a whole nation of Vince McMahons <laughs> and their whims and whimsies. Maybe that's why they got in is they, they saw a kindred soul. I, I sometimes feel like I do live in a nation full of Vince McMahons, but that's another story. Talk about New Japan. Sure. So uh, you've been you wrote a whole story on Fightful about the attendance. Did they set some records here for at least a couple same year or uh, year over year looks records? Like they
2: did at least in, in the in recent years. At least going back to 2014. Um, I out I, I had a lot of help from a uh, from Evan on Twitter at, at Evan Deadly Sins as well as uh, John Carroll also does a podcast here on the Voices of Wrestling Network at Evan Deadly Sins That's right. W. Thank you. And what is the name of John's? Uh, podcast I'm not going to try to pronounce it it's it's a it's a Japanese word but it's also on on the network that you're listening to the Voice of the Wrestling network oh. so th- th- they helped me figure out what the ticket prices were so we and, and what how many tickets were in each section luckily there aren't too many sections uh, in in the sumo hall i think that's kind of how it is in in most Japanese venues when it comes to how they sell tickets online or whatever
1: oh you're talking about wrestling omakase exactly that one? thank you
2: yeah Nailed it. So they helped me figure out the variables. They helped me uncover the variables that I needed to figure out what the gate was. And what we we found out was the final night of the G1. So prior two years, they've run the Sumo Hall three nights in a row. Um, They run the last two regular block days of of the G1, and then they run the final at the Sumo Hall. So this year, they drew a $1.3 million gate, or so I estimated. um, And that's compared to an $850,000 gate. Uh, on the final night last year, and the same thing for the year before that in 2015. So that is probably, besides the Tokyo Dome, that is probably the biggest gate that they've had since at least the G1 Climax final night in 2014 where they went to the Seibu Dome in Saitama, which had an an announced attendance of 18,000. That number is almost certainly exaggerated. We, that, that gate might have been higher than 1.3 million. I'm not really sure. Um, they never, because we don't have a legitimate attendance. So New Japan started putting legitimate attendances, legitimate paid attendances, according to uh, Kadani on their website. Whereas before May of 2015, they were probably exaggerated. So the, so that's the gate for the sumo hall. The gates are, are, are up substantially. Attendance is also up substantially year-over-year, going from 2015, 16, and 17. The total attendance for the entire tour was over 80,000, 80,639 compared to about 74,000 in the year prior and about 70,000 in the year before that. So they're gaining by about 5,000 attendees uh, each year for the last three G1 Climax tours.
1: So impressive, like uh, uh, definitely a, a promotion on the rise and... I think that's really telling, and a whole lot more people than NXT is going to draw in this fiscal year. Yeah, well, I think Ring of Honor is doing okay in terms of attendance, aren't they? Uh, Yeah, but I mean, they're really excited if they can draw, what, 5,000 people? I think 3,500 is the record. Yeah, so I mean, I I think it puts New Japan definitely in that next echelon, but CMLL and whatnot that can draw on that five-figure mark. And did you, did you just watch any of the G1? I did not watch any of the G1 you, You've yet. missed out on all these six-star matches. I know, uh, but that's okay. That's okay. You know, it's, it's uh, they're treats, right? And every every time period has treats, and uh, uh, I will search out certain things mm-hmm. and find them, and maybe as I get... I, I'd vote less and less when it comes to like match of the year and things at the end if I don't feel like I've really felt yeah. watched enough of the contenders. I, I've, um, I've felt in recent years and this probably has nothing to
2: do with WrestleLomics, but I felt in recent years that, that wrestling is getting better and better. There's more and more great matches to see. There's more and more wrestling to see. And it's just so easy to find really great wrestling. And that makes me care less about how good matches are, I guess. Um, and so I get less excited you know, this year compared to last year about things like what are the best matches of the year, which, which, which is something I used to be really interested in before. You know, what are the best matches of the year, and what's the star rating for that match? I just care less about that stuff just because there's such an abundance of great wrestling. I kind of get sure, saturated. True.
1: But <laughs> I do think it's important for historical research purposes sure. that you know it's easy now to talk about it, but it's like if someone goes back to 2002 and they want to look at the year, it's really helpful when you have kind of certain markers to say this is what people wanted to talk for about sure, back then. for sure. And what's been fascinating to me is we did like the best of the 1980 series um, with that yeah, is that sometimes some matches would come out and people would be absolutely blown away by them. And you, that, that was like would, DVDs being sent to everybody, right? Yep, yeah. Yeah.
2: You, 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 you participate in that? Like you watched that stuff?
1: Yes, because I was the statistician. That's right. I remember so that. So I have a copy of, I think, every set, actually. I have Portland. I have Mid-South. I have Other Japan. I have New Japan. I have All Japan. I have Memphis. I have wwe i have, have you you watched all that stuff i watched a lot of it i won't say i've watched all 150 matches but almost i have, I have lucha i have lot, so i have lots and lots of stuff there and not every one of them i sat and took notes and watched everything a lot of times i would wait to kind of find out what the best stuff was and watch some of you it you still have all that stuff you still have I, do, DVDs? I do i do oh, i have on. i have a couple probably 100 dvds now between all the sets um but the, the point of it being, sometimes a match would come out of that and everyone uniformly would be like, Oh my god, look at this thing. This is incredible. And up to that point there had not been a lot of talk about it. And so like the Dundee Lawler uh was it I'm sorry, no, the Dundee uh uh was it Watts? Who was it? Oh it was the Loser Leave Town matches, those were really amazing. The um uh uh some I, I remember in, in Texas when it was that set, it was um a Killer Con match was the second best match on the entire set and was just incredible and just stuff like that that you you don't notice it at the time and then later you can kind of go back and have a different appreciation for it and so there's that element too which is at times you're blinded by certain things and you get really caught up on i love this tiger mask bret hart or you know not tiger mask bret hart but tiger mask dynamite kid stuff and then you might be missing something else that you think is really important And uh, it's interesting to see it through another set of eyes. So I also like watching stuff sometimes a couple years removed because you can – you appreciate it in a very different way is what I'm trying to get at. Sure. Um, I I think there's a lot of feeling coming out of that that the best
2: Tiger Mask matches were not with I'm My Kid so much as others.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean that that was the big takeaway there was that under today's eyeballs, Tiger Mask does not fare nearly as well. And a lot of other people are a lot more interesting. But – at the time that he was doing new stuff that nobody did yeah and people's perception they liked him the wrestlers talked about it they it was different and so it's also it's all speculative and sub subjective what is to say though is you know we talk about star ratings being dave star ratings and um somebody uh reached out to me with a pretty exciting project they're working on and uh, I won't spoil it here right now. I'm just going to give a little teaser to say uh, they're looking a lot at that information and uh, processing it with 21st century tools. And I'm kind of excited to see where this goes. And it's not me, so I'm happy because <laughs> I can I can review the results as they they come in rather than having to actually generate them myself. So this is an analysis of Dave's star ratings? It's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's 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 an academic level analysis. Let's put it that way. Yeah, was, you know, you, you meet some some cool people uh, working on stuff and uh, every now and then they'll just knock your socks off by surprising you or something. So just gave me a little taste of it the other day. But, yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, New Japan right now is really operating at a high level and has a, a lot of guys. And even with, you know, Shibata and and Hamna and, and some other big injuries that have happened, they're still doing quite well. And I know you're you're speculating, you know, by 2019, what if Nakamura goes back? What if Daniel Bryan goes there? What if uh, uh, Kenta, you know, uh, Atami leaves? What if, you know, even a CM Punk came back? They'd all be almost 40 years old at that point.
2: Right. So th- this is kind of a New Japan uh, fan fiction here. But you look at, I think we know that Bryan, Daniel Bryan's contract, Bryan Danielson's W contract expires about September 2018, at which point, I guess he could conceivably go to New Japan Pro Wrestling. Nakamura has been said to have a three-year deal. That would be from two, probably early 2016, right? So that would make him free in early 2019. If you think about, well, maybe is this Hideo Tommy long for WWE? I don't know.
1: No, it, it could be really exciting. I mean, you kind of go back to when WWF uh, let go. A whole bunch of guys or a bunch of guys left and a lot of people were like well they're guys in their 40s they don't have any you know no gas left in the tank and they were one-tenth of the workers of any of these guys uh in the ring and but they're big personalities and there's something always to be said that that charisma is the thing you can't teach but will we'll carry through and so you know there's a lot to be said about how charismatic all four of those people we just mentioned are um, and their ability that they could be in a new Japan ring, even at their forty years old, "quote unquote" advanced age, they would still be able to uh, produce some pretty exciting stuff. Much in the same way, a lot of other guys, the Mudas and the uh, the Masawas and whatnot of the world, have also been able to produce at that older age. Right.
2: So the the idea here is also by two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen, we know that WWE is going to have to renew their TV rights deal or get get some sort of rights deal uh, renewed by. 2019. So the, the NBCU deal expires in September 2019. I think the, the UK and India deals expire December 2019, I think it is. So And th- that's the big event on on the horizon for WWE business. And if, for whatever reason, because of cha- changes in the media landscape, if they get some sort of reduced rate on their rights fees in their next contract, that would probably, would you agree, cause a lot of co- cost-cutting in WWE? And that may
1: trickle down to cutting WWE talent pay? No. No. I I thought about this question and I think it's a, a, a perfectly fine premise I think you can argue the opposite premise which is WWE's reliance on television rights fees in 2017 does not dictate the reliance on television rights fees in 2019 Being the point of opening up new marketplaces and the point of diversifying your revenue streams is that You don't have to be as reliant in 2019 on these new TV deals now Does that mean that they will be able to do that? No, I don't know if they can do that. But it doesn't necessitate that they have to be so reliant of them in 2019. And so I do think there's something to be said that they can in some ways transform their business in a way that if the TV rights fees were to come in at a number that they would predict – but not that would be extravagant, that it wouldn't cause a, a detrimental effect to the company and there would be just massive cost-cutting. I, I think in some ways the, perform, the wrestlers themselves are not the main cost of what's driving a lot of stuff going on in this business. Okay. So that that's my counter, you know, that's my, my, uh, my con- contrarian opinion here is that uh, a bad TV rights deal does not mean the end of it. But I agree, maybe they're not going to spend... A quarter of a million dollars on keeping a nakamura in 2019 who's almost 40 years old You think they're only paying him a quarter million dollars a year? No, but i'm saying by 2019 his downside Yeah, you know and and part of that could also be Maybe they don't have to have a business model where they have to do that You know the the idea might be within three years here We're going to be generating our own talent in a way That means I don't have to go out there and buy this expensive talent from another place in the world I don't think that's going to happen just because they don't have worldwide control on
2: all media. They only have control of their own media. And as long as there's other media out there to build up these grassroots people like, like Nakamura and like all the, the other people that they've brought into NXT and have gotten instant reactions, I think there's always going to be, and, and maybe ever more in the future, there's going to be a, a way for people to get over without having to be on WWE programming
1: i agree but i mean is your is your vision here that by 2019 new japan strikes a big deal and then they become a worldwide player oh i didn't even consider that because oh. no. i i think that's the challenge is you also had a question on, a, on an earlier bullet point being like will russell kingdom ever become a travel destination for fans like WrestleMania? Yeah, and i think a lot of it goes to what i've experienced and seen of japanese culture which is it's easy for western people to want to embrace it but it's tough for japanese and culture to embrace western meaning it's much easier for wwe to be like we want to make it possible for international fans to come to our event than it has seemed to be for japan to say we want people to come to japan and watch our things and
2: because probably because so much of their culture at least their entertainment is is american entertainment to
1: begin with Mm, i just feel like maybe societally Um, there's a different value and understanding placed on making sure that your entertainment is being consumed, um, domestically that, you know, Japan views as they're making the stuff. And in some cases we're copying it. We might even be importing it, but a lot of times, um, it, it doesn't find its niche in the U S beyond being a niche versus in the U S we're very interested in becoming that dominant, uh, media culture in other places. Wrestle Kingdom, this is going to be Wrestle Kingdom 12, I think, in 2018, January
2: 4th. I think we are going to see, at least anecdotally, I don't know how we could ever confirm this or deny it. I think we're going to see more people from around the world traveling to Wrestle Kingdom. I,
1: uh, I don't doubt it. I, I just mean, even in the way that like Arena Mexico has gone to try to get tourists to come in to come to the events... I feel like there's more of that going on than there is Japan actually trying to make it easy for foreigners to come watch their things. I mean, I could be wrong, but I mean, people show, show me where there's these international pages where they're encouraging you to come and buy. Because everyone I know that tries to go to Japan to watch wrestling, it seems like they have to cobble together quite a lot of things to make it work.
2: Because you have to go through – because it's hard to buy tickets to events. It's hard to do all these things because of the language barrier.
1: Uh, and also just the, the – yeah, and it doesn't seem like the promotion is always necessarily setting it up to make it easier for us. Okay. You know, like WWE went out of its way to create these kind of travel packages, so much so that it's a separate budget line on their their segment sheet. You know, and sure. I'm just not convinced. I've been seeing that in you know, the, it it's easy to survive at that ECW level. Not not that it's easy to survive, but it's possible to survive. And it's much different when you're trying to scale that up by ten. In terms of, you know, there's a difference between doing long beach shows in, in California and running a Wrestle Kingdom and, and making that accessible to people. So I would love to see right. it. I Don't get me wrong. I would love to see that. I just don't believe that historically we've always seen Japan bending over backwards to make themselves more accessible to other cultures to come in and enjoy their media. Yeah. Well, it might be a good idea if New Japan set something
2: like that up to try to make it more accessible.
1: Exactly. So if you're the uh, the global operations director of New Japan right now listening, if Ghetto is listening to this, uh, yeah. you know, your your name's spelled backwards, Mr. Kiani. OG.
2: Mr. Kiyani. But I think, uh, just real quick, I, th- I think Russell Kingdom in 2018 is going to have a higher attendance than it did the two years prior, which I think somewhere around 26,000 they've reported for the paid number. And I think... Part of that, it may, may only be if a couple hundred or something like that, will be people from outside of Japan who've traveled in.
1: Absolutely, yeah. No, I think and I think even the pushing of Omega says a lot, because he, yeah. he, he is kind of in a different—in some ways he fits some of the mold, right? Because historically, what are the gaijin that they have embraced— have been this kind of hybrid Japanese American gaijin, right? Yeah. So it's, it's like, bilingual. like well, bilingual, but also just like the Bruiser Brodies or the Stan Hansens or the the Funk brothers. Yes, they're foreigners, but at the same time they spent a lot of time in the country making themselves big stars, right? You know, they they invested in the culture and the people and the time. And Kenny Omega undoubtedly has done that as well. It's not like, you know, even like a Ric Flair or something we'd argue, well, you know, he went to Japan, but he didn't really go very much and And wasn't you know really someone who who went over there, you know Hulk Hogan even spent a fair amount of time in Japan to make himself a big star so um it, it just to me he fits the mold still, but i I think he is also very much attracting a new western audience, and he is helping being a niche there, and of the streaming platforms that they've created are an enormous in in a way that in the past there's been so many even just tiny little things like we were talking last week like about pal versus ntsc you know there's so many barriers to putting media into the hands of other people that we've we've overcome now with the internet
2: any someone who's lived in japan for a while too right like i don't know if there's any foreign wrestler wrestling in japan who's well, there's tons on yeah. the
1: lower quiet, quiet Storm is quiet there. Storm, yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's even a guy on the Observer Board who was talking about training in Japan, and he more or less was admitting that uh, he worked in Japan, and then he found like a wrestling school there that was willing to basically train him. But more or less, he was working in Japan more than he was you know, a wrestler living in Japan.
2: But uh, just to, real quick to go back to Brian and Nakamura, I feel like it's almost a – it's almost like a Trojan horse in that they've here's new Japan who wants to go global they want to appeal to fans in the U.S. and around the world and, and here they are maybe they've got you know two guys or more on WWE's TV right now like and like Nakamura who who was with them previously and, and has left New Japan to join WWE and now he's getting worldwide exposure on all of WWE's platforms and uh maybe someday he'll go back to New Japan and we'll have all that capital that he's gained from being on WWE's uh, programming. So it's it's like I wonder if WWE ever thinks about that. Do we have this guy forever? Is he gonna gonna go back to New Japan one day and be even more famous, at least globally?
1: Um, I I personally don't get the impression like like WWE is ever very concerned about charismatic people going back to their home country and being a big star. I I just don't see it. Um, as much as I see them being worried about their stars possibly going somewhere else for big money. So I, I could see them being worried about Daniel Bryan going. I could see them being worried about CM Punk going. I don't see them being as worried about... Specific, Hitomi, uh Hideo Tomi, uh, Absolutely Atomi, no. yeah, yeah. Tommy. Tomi, yeah. Uh, definitely not him. Um, Nakamura, maybe. But it would really... Because well, Nakamura's on the main roster and Tommy
2: may not even get to the main roster. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I mean... I'm not sure that they would they would fight it, you know, all that much, especially, you know, depending on I just don't feel like they ever really feel like these guys are their guys as much if they don't speak fluent English. Well, then why would they sign them and why would they push them and Nakamura might win the title on Sunday? I, I just mean in terms of when they say I want to go back to my home country, I just don't see them saying, OK, we're going to try to make you this offer to stop you. And maybe that's just very um myoptic of me. But I, I just Well they've never had a situation like this where going back to your home country
2: means going back to your home country and wrestling for a company that wants to uh, art, do business
1: globally. Uh, art, no, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, arguably Kali in India was obviously someone who meant something, as he proved, but you know, I, I think it was pretty clear that they didn't think he meant something for them. So they were willing to to sacrifice that.
2: Um, and then the difference is Kali wasn't going to uh, an Indian promotion that, that had an OTT service that they were yeah, marketing yeah, globally, and, and, and they weren't going to try to run shows in the yeah, U.S. Yeah, and
1: there's not a good example. I mean, WCW squandered their opportunities with Great Muda and Liger and people like that, so they're not good analogies either. So, yeah, you're probably right. Um, and and at the time, New Japan was a one-country promotion. Yes, yeah. Well, and, and those India shows occasionally and yeah, yeah, well, North Korea. Then, yeah. uh, let's talk flow sports since we're talking media right now uh what is the latest going on with uh mr mr Gabe Sapolsky's channel of choice flow slam
2: the flow slam which airs all the evolve events for example and, and airs all the the all the events in the WWE family which include evolve style battle shimmer shine, right or sh- shine shine not sh- shine not shimmer got it. shimmer is DVD only they're kind of like PWG in that way
1: it's kind of um, weird that they're and, one's called Shine and the other's called Shimmer. They're very light oriented. It's very easy to confuse, yeah. yeah. Mm.
2: Um, so, so Flow Slam, we, we we learned from the Torch this week that uh, the vice president, uh, I believe it's rights acquisition, Toby Margler, was was fired from his position, and that's another uh, personnel change. As we had, how long so, has Flow
1: Slam been around?
2: Uh, since October twenty fourth, two thousand sixteen. Is when they uh, they dropped the press release saying we're we've got WN so that would, and we're going to broadcast wrestling ten months then yeah and we and, and in that time so from October that, that, that's late October so I think sometime I think it was sometime around November uh, our friend Rob McCarron uh, took a job with with Flow Slam and and they quit I think about after about a week um, so so Jerry Botter is the managing editor left Flow Slam in December and uh, so it uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, Upheaval it seems and flow slam. But
1: maybe this is yeah. just like, you know, there's Godwin's Law and there's Moore's Law. Maybe this is um uh Singerman's Law or and it's just when you start a wrestling streaming service, you will turn over no less than five executives within a year. Are there are there other businesses to WB uh, network, baby? On. Ah there You, you know that that's why it's Singerman's Law. It was Matthew Singerman and oh, uh, Perkin maybe it's Perkin's Law, I don't know. Perkins Miller's Law a lot, but just the, the idea that, you know, we saw the same thing with WWE network where they were, they turned over a lot of people in a a year, year and a half. And so there is that element to say, perhaps when these things don't take off the way that they originally thought they would, um, people get a little punchy (laughs) and then, and one of the first things that, that falls is not necessarily the, um, programming, but actually the executives. Rovert on Twitter
2: says that uh, the, the word on the street is that Flow Slam might not make it past January.
1: January uh, of this time. year, so they would they would make it a year and then make January three of months of next year or so, two of months next year, yeah. Quit. So so the idea being that Flow Sports would pull the plug,
2: I suppose, because Flow Sports isn't going. Well, I don't know. If, I don't think Flow Sports is going to go, itself is going to go out of business. Yeah, in fact,
1: right. we were just talking last week, right, about the idea that if you're ESPN or something like that, right. a Flow Sports might be... Shopping themselves to these bigger uh, OTT services. Might be the sort of thing that you just purchase so that you already have these OTT rights wrapped up and you can maybe glam them up a little bit and, you know, package it in a way that you can sell it and being attached to a much larger, better infrastructure. I mean, hell of a lot more people have heard of ESPN than they have heard of Flow Sports. So, um, you know, maybe there'd be something there. Uh, so that that's, I think that's, that's a good example of like, why there might be a calculus going on in Flow Sports that has very little to do with whether Flow Slam is profitable or not, and rather some of the other things that are happening in that company, and sometimes companies struggle a lot when they can't focus on two things at once, because they don't get the support they need from upper management, and at the same time, they're bleeding money, and you know the easiest way to deal with that is just stop, just cut off the limb rather than to actually fix the problem. Sure. And So I've, I've looked at similar web, and it's something I think we've
2: talked about before. Uh, if you look at the similar web monthly unique visits, it looks like Flow Slam isn't doing that much better than the high spots wrestling network was.
1: But it's flat uh, but, is is what part of this is, right? Like compared to the other people that are going up and going down, Yeah, it's flat. Right. It's the it, same number in November as it is in July, almost to a T. Right, and then the difference is between I'm, – I'm looking at uh, some stats
2: from – the services of Demand Progress, DDT Universe, Flow Slam, and the High Spots Network. It, at least the differences between Flow Slam and the rest are, are pretty consistent. Where you've got the DDT you know, Universe, which which launched in December uh, of last year, has, is, is, is spiking up at least in January, and Demand Progress went way up in June, according to this. So it looks like Flow Slam had a little bit of a bump in interest around WrestleMania. But I was
1: going to say WrestleMania um, is clearly a um, uh, something that that affects any kind of domestic streaming wrestling service is that the demand just generated from that week. Um, A, High Spots was running shows that week. And, you know, I remember Meltzer just raving and raving and raving about one of those big tag matches that he called, like, the future of wrestling. And even Flow Slam ran some events that weekend, too, if I'm not mistaken, right? Well, they ran a number of events.
2: So each year they they run – at least two evolve shows and i think they might have ran three evolve shows and then there's like the the, uh, the wwn special mercury rising so,
1: so i mean there's that element where like he, there's shine as well on there you could argue that wwe dry and, uh, and real quick also on flow slam there's that
2: that joey janela show yep. the uh joey janela spring break was that on flow slam or was that on high spots was, that was on flow slam i watched it myself
1: huh. i just saw i saw that's the clip of joey janela doing the monkey flip where he's in the chair and he lands on the chair uh yeah it's awesome I, as a man who loves monkey flips made me happy um but yeah i I think that's the most interesting thing is to say if wwe did not provide this super bowl of wrestling weekend where essentially everybody is focused on the idea of professional wrestling streaming services and then all these places get to run kind of super shows where so much talent is nearby that you know who was it one like will osprey or something did like some ungodly number of shows in five days um you know, if that wasn't happening, I almost feel like that's not necessarily the success of the service as much as they just happen to have a really good way to get a bunch of people to kind of be tuned into that thing. And it shows that it affects both of those services, but at the same time, for the rest of the year, their number didn't go way up, and it didn't—it definitely didn't stick, and it also it didn't really, you know, plummet precipitously. But it doesn't suggest that they've really increased their audience share by all that much versus what their initial audience was right and i think the the buzz amongst fans for whom that this
2: a, a service like flow slam would, would be targeted towards i think the buzz has really worn off and some of that may be troubled by the fact that when this service was first announced or even the day before or whatever it was that it was announced there was a lot of hype about how oh, this this, this thing is going to happen that's going to really be big news and it might really change the business
1: um and people's and then- people's brains go faster than their mouths go faster than their uh, pocketbooks. So while we always say if PWG and ROH was on it, I would subscribe to Flow Slam. Mm-hmm. Only a portion of those people really would. Y- much in the same way, every time we talk about New Japan, I think, oh, I should subscribe to New Japan. And yet I don't. And so it's like y- it's easy to kind of say you're going to do something and actually doing it, is, you're, there's much less chance you will. But um, if there was
2: a service that had evolved. New Japan, Ring of Honor, PWG,
1: and Progress for $15 a month. Would you subscribe to it? Does it also include... (laughs) You're going to negotiate with... Will it have uh, Onita and CZW? No, uh, I don't don't know. Yeah, yeah, I would love to say I would. Um, I would definitely give it a shot. I would definitely give it a shot if it was on Roku. To me, it's like... It's like when you're Flow Sports is on Roku. Yeah, so so I probably would, yeah. right? So that I mean, it's a little bit like when you have a video game system and somebody else tells you about a great video game, but it's not for the console you have. Yeah. You don't necessarily go out of your way to even experience it after a certain amount of time. You just might not have that interest. Where there's some people that are like, I have to have a PS4 and a Nintendo Switch so I can do it all. And I, you know, people just have different tolerances for what how they want to consume. But I now, now now going from that this theoretical service that I've just described
2: which chats <laughs> evolve ring of honor pwg progress in new japan there's like two light layers of of unknowns I think to figure out well is this a, a good business idea is that okay how much does it cost to acquire all of those and then how many people are actually going to subscribe is, is it going to be enough people
1: to be profitable so let's pretend you just pitch that service Well, it was September of 2016, and you pitched that service. And I said, I don't know, but maybe. Now, it is August of 2017, and New Japan has made it clear they're not going to do this with you. And ROH has made it clear that Sinclair is doing all this stuff right now, and you're not going to make Sinclair happy. And so, suddenly, you know that that hypothetical service that you... And PWG has decided they're satisfied just doing what they're doing and selling DVDs. Yeah. So... You're stuck now because what you kind of pitched was the reason I think the service launched in September, which was the hypothetical. Yeah. And then what has come in and the reason why you would pull the plug is that you might look at it and say, if I could never get the New Japan of the world, if I could never get the ROH of the world or the PWG or the the CMLL or the AAA or even the TNA of the world, it's, it's just a service that's going to have this many subscribers and have this much overhead and it's never really going to grow all that much. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be a it's it's a, a passion. It's a subscription <laughs> service. It's
2: a subscription service for WWN, whereas before Flow Slam WWN offered eye per views on an individual basis that you would have to pay ten dollars for, or you have to pay fifteen dollars for if you bought it on the day of the event. And this is it's it's basically just become a subscription service for that rather than having to make individual purchases
1: and and pay a monthly payment. So as a company, I can see why, you know, attitudes are going to change, right? Because what was a potential upstream, even if it was a small percentage chance a year ago, has become a much smaller percentage chance now. And at the same time, things like WrestleMania weekend, where you would probably hope, hey, I'm going to convert all these people that are just going to keep subscribing. It doesn't look like that really had a big impact as much as maybe they would hope it would have. And much in the same way, WWE every year came up with crazy scenarios where everything would be rosy and people, they'd get a million people more. It's tougher than people think it's going to be.
2: And I wonder too, if they never really had a wrestling person working for them, it sounds like a lot of the people who, who've worked on flow slam
1: have mostly been people with an MMA background or like an MMA media background. Well, and, and it's tough, you know, there's take someone like a Dave Lagana or lots of people at TNA I don't know if they're good or bad at their job. I know that I've seen them work in some situations where they produce really good stuff, and I've seen them in other situations where the product doesn't end up being all that great. But they seem to have really good minds, and they have good intentions, and they have you know a passion for what they do. And even that doesn't always translate to great results, because there's so many other factors that can compound it. And so what I'm getting at is that there's not a lot of executives with professional wrestling um, business experience that are out there that are attainable. But there's also, I think, a lot of people that just think, I can figure this out on my own. I don't need these experts. And you know, like any group, you're gonna latch on to a group of people that you feel comfortable with and a group of people that tell you things that are at least consistent with some worldview you have. and the the biggest challenge you're gonna have is that either everyone's gonna tell you a thousand different things and you have no strategy out of that, or, People are going to tell you something that's impossible. So, you know, if everyone's solution is go get ROH and PWG, and that's not possible, you're not going to see much value in those people, even if they have a lot of other good ideas. So, I, I, I feel for Flow Slam in the sense that, you know, it, it's not easy to find professional wrestling executives that um, are out there working. And even the ones that are there, I think there's some really smart minds, and it doesn't always even show, show through in the groups that they get hired for.
2: And if we're talking about wrestling executives, like those in companies like wbt and and
0: yeah, Ring of Honor, yeah.
2: I don't know that many of them would have the background of knowledge that this company in particular needed, which was not of big time pro wrestling, but
1: but was of independent wrestling or non non WWE wrestling yeah and it's it's a challenge so i i i just mean i think a lot of really talented people are in places that sometimes they don't always get credit for how hard it is for all all the decisions and factors they have to bring in and uh it sounds like this startup is not going so smoothly and i just can't be that surprised because if you ever read the flow sports as a larger organization It's got a lot of pros and cons to it, and it doesn't always sound like it's a place where it's such fluid decision-making that ends up going great for everyone involved. Let's talk – I want to talk quickly about this Toronto Concussion Lab article. Um, It was just – it was an interesting little article that came out on (laughs) thewalrus.ca, and it was just talking about how that there's this lab in Toronto that basically has been coming up with research that's a little bit different than what the Boston University CTE Center lab does. And basically they're struggling with a lot of the same things that they struggle with in the U.S., which is – it's in this case the CFL and lawsuits over players that are getting older and then the fact that they did a study and they found that half the brains had cte and oddly enough this study was called absence of cte in retired football players with multiple concussions even though half of them had and in the article they almost basically say well because it was people who wanted to submit their brains they were probably self selecting and therefore they it was higher than normal and maybe um, maybe it's even psychosomatic, this idea of of so many people finding CTE among concussion people. And so it, it's a kind of a, a controversial article talking about everything from the difference between the CFL and the NFL, being how do they line up, the number of downs, whether they pass more or rush more, and then to things like um, suicide rates and talking about it. Uh, this is from 2013. Uh, this no, no, article. the article is brand new, I think. The study was, was published The online. study was from 2013. The article's brand new just talking about the whole series of events. Right right, I guess I'm, I guess I'm asking about this. Oh yeah, the then. study was from 2013, yeah. Right. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um okay. and then just kind of talking about this idea about suicides where apparently there was a Stanford um, a, a university anesthesiologist, I uh, was a professor, and he was basically referring to the the idea of the suicides happening as a um as a contagion. Rather than a CTE, this idea of being kind of like uh, that it was feeding off each other because because you see so many other football players, you you see these stories about other football players
2: committing suicide and whatnot. Yeah,
1: that 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 somehow this projects this depression, this relation does that. And so it's an interesting counter argument. I don't buy it very much, to be really honest, a lot of the stuff here. And it it gets into the argument about um, if the CFL was was funding kind of some of these studies. And then, of course, they find that CT is not caused in CFL players, uh, which is the same argument that's been made a little bit with the the Boston University stuff saying, you know, they're getting money from WWE. And lo and behold, they stopped finding CT in, in wrestlers because they're not looking for it anymore. And I don't know if I buy either of those, but it, it raises interesting questions about this idea about is the Boston University group just getting better press or do they have better science than everyone else? And I think they're what they're doing right now makes a lot of sense. And, and they're saying a lot about, you know, they're really doing the research. But it was intriguing just to kind of see a, a counter study where they're saying maybe there's so many other factors going on, being at genetics, being at the people that don't end up with CTE despite having a lot of concussions. Um, maybe certain people are prone to it Uh there's times when you read this that you begin to think of the old Tobacco Institute researchers where they're able to find, you know, smoking doesn't cause cancer, even though we're looking at it all these different ways. So I, I don't know exactly how I feel when I read it, but I thought it was a really intriguing article. And for my uh, Canadian fans, which uh, last check was, let's see, there 8% of, of our listeners, uh, you know, just let you know about some research being done up in Toronto. And, uh, so the, the Boston – is Boston University? Well, there's the Sports Legacy Institute, and then there's Boston University. I think they've kind of all working together in terms of it's it's a division of one, but it's it's there's also a company that does certain parts of it. And, and so, so, was that the organization? That's Nowinski's
2: or yeah. group or whatever. Okay, but but was that the the, the group that put out? The recent study, I think, I think we might have talked yes, about it. they or, were what,
1: 95, 99 percent had CTE that they looked they, at. That was many of the same researchers. Yes, like Nowinski is credited on that study. And and this was self selected
2: people or brains, right? These are people who had symptoms and suspected that they might have CTE, and lo and behold, they found they did.
1: Uh, in, in that study, I would they were people that, whose brains were donated by their families. Or they themselves, um, in many cases, had agreed to be donated. And so there's a strong argument to be made that, yes, many of them might think they had CTE or their families might have thought. But there's also an argument to be made that we're reaching a point now where enough people are concerned that people are signing up for these studies and getting involved regardless of whether or not they're showing signs of CTE. I mean, I know of professional wrestlers who have already Made a commitment to, you know, donate their brain, not because they think they have CTE but because they want to, you know, they want to know they want people to be able to do research on it. So I think in time here, you know, I don't think it's ninety nine percent of NFL players and I don't think anyone should take that away. I think the argument was of the NFL brains they got at that time. This was the number. And that was still pretty shocking because it was a very high percentage of the people that they thought had it. And it was a still high percentage of people that were dying at many different ages. So it will be interesting. It was just I I just was intrigued by that uh kind of different research in a different direction. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about media too. Just some of the things that have been happening. Uh, there's been a little bit of you know, kind of the WCW WWF wars uh, are now the Amazon Netflix wars. You know where they're signing each other's content producers and they're sniping at each other. So uh, the Robert Kirkman who does The Walking Dead uh, is now leaving AMC to go work for Amazon. Produce original content Shonda Rhimes Very famously Is leaving ABC Disney uh, uh And is gonna go work For Netflix And it's It's interesting Cause we We really see this desire To kind of go upstream And get more and more Of these content creators And um Rather than just licensing the content, really, you know, kind of getting to the point where they themselves are controlling it and owning it. And the Netflix boss uh, was talking all about it, and he was saying, you know, we spent five billion in 2016. We're going to spend six billion in 2017, and we're going to spend seven billion next year on, you know, lo- the content rights that they're paying for. And they still say it's going to be mostly licensed. They're still years away from being 50-50 between original content they're producing and content they're licensing. And just talking mm-hmm. about, you know, they don't have plans for China. Netflix doesn't. Um, yeah, they got to get on PPT. Yeah, they, 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 they like Latin America. They think they quote, it's a rocket ship in Western Europe and we're just entering Asia. And to me, I would always look at Netflix if I'm a streaming service trying to expand in the world and say they're the ones that are doing the best job at trying to really figure this all out. And it says a lot to me that that Netflix is focusing on Latin America and Western Europe, whereas WWE Networks is always talking about India and China, and that's kind of shocking to me sometimes when I really put that in perspective. Um, and just the fact that.